This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. Episode 32 Slow Fall One. Twenty years prior to the fall. Captain Davis looked down the list of cadets. It was his second year to be stationed as a director of physical education at the Venus Academy. Earth was but a mere speck in the distance, at least it would be if not for the cloud cover that forever shrouded the atmosphere of Venus. The glass ceiling of the Academy allowed everyone to see the churning clouds all the time. William Mason! You're paired with... Davis ran his finger down the list once more on his tablet. Jonathan Tabith. He looked up. Two 18-year-old boys approached from the line of human faces. Each of them wore the standard dark blue initiate's uniform that allowed their pores to sweat and breathe as needed without obstruction. Jonathan had black hair, William had brown. Each wore an earpiece so they could relay information to one another. William pushed his black half-rimmed glasses up his nose and crossed his arms as Jonathan extended his arm in the air to stretch his upper torso to the right and left. All right, you know what to do, Davis nodded. The two boys dashed off at opposite 45-degree angles from Davis and the other recruits. Ready for this? William asked into his communicator as they approached the first terminal. On my mark, Jonathan took the lead. William felt a spark of jealousy, but pushed it away. The point of the exercise was to show one's ability to follow directions and work as a team. They parked by their adjacent terminals. Ready? Go, Jonathan said. William counted off as he pressed the buttons that could one day prevent a disaster aboard a space station or spacecraft. Red 62, the two said in unison. Green 79, blue 12, purple 7, green 56. They continued the sequence until the set was over. Ready? William asked as Jonathan confirmed. The irritation returned. Jonathan was getting leadership points left and right over William. He knew how to take advantage of the communications monitoring program that would eventually relay to their supervisors the kind of leadership skills each of them possessed. It would land Jonathan a better job in the academy. They moved to their next terminals, performed the same style of sequence, moved to the last, and returned to their starting positions before the other recruits. Both of them panted, beads of sweat dripping down their cheeks. 98% synchronization, Davis said, looking at the tablet in his hands with everyone's stats displayed on it. Impressive for first years. You two are going to be paired together from now on. Move on to the next room. William flipped the switch on his communicator as he and Jonathan walked toward the double sliding doors leading to the next room. Look, Jonathan, I know you want to be the best as much as I do, but throw me a bone every now and then. Jonathan laughed. Come on, Will. Jonathan wrapped his arm around William's neck. We both know you'll never beat me. I'm light years ahead of you on the charts. All the more reason for you to tone it down a bit. I don't have a problem with you, but I joined the Academy to work together with like-minded people. We are like-minded. We're kicking ass and taking names. What's wrong with being a close second? Jonathan asked. Without giving William time to respond, Jonathan disappeared into the bathroom. William stared at the bathroom door. Everything. Five months after the fall. All right, you son of a bitch. William removed the panel on the wall in order to gain access to the freighter's core control systems. 
Hooks had been installed on the back of each panel so they could hang on the vents each panel contained. He placed the panel on the next panel over as if positioning a frame on the wall. He clutched his makeshift harness with one hand as he pocketed his screwdriver. He pinched the place between his eyes. It had been six days since he actually slept. Working all day and night made him feel like a corpse, but there was too much to do. He needed to keep these vehicles spaceworthy if he could. The alert sounded from the cockpit, startling William. He hauled himself up the rope and climbed back into the cockpit to see what had happened. The holographic video screen displayed that one of the hawks in their inventory had been destroyed, or at least it was no longer spaceworthy. Computer display 360 feedback from Hawk 17 one minute before its destruction. The circumference about the hawk that had departed from their functioning inventory projected next to him. There appeared to be a man inside, fearing for his life. A moment later, the shape of a man in torn clothing, coated in blood, slammed onto the hood of the hawk. It was Jonathan Tabith. William watched his next actions with growing concern. He let the computer simulate the uncanny vision of Jonathan tearing the hood off the hawk in order to execute this man who was no one to them, a useless fool of an Alondron. Computer reverse 16 seconds. Freeze simulation. William had paused the visualization on Jonathan just as he began to tear the windshield of the vehicle off. He walked right up to the image and glared at him. How did I know you would bring your vengeance to this planet? He couldn't help but stare at the contorted expression of pure hatred upon Jonathan's face and in his eyes. This man was a danger to the Alondrons and the humans and himself. Computer, lock Jonathan Tabith's vitals into the system and remind me when his readings are present at any given time. If he so much as shits near one of our ships, I want to know about it. The computer confirmed the order. William returned to his work. 2. Present Rainier, upon his black horse, Mender, galloped around the bank of Circe's River and made for Golter Pass and Golter's Bridge. He had long brown hair tied into a ponytail that trailed down his back. Runic blue and green tattoos covered his body beneath his vest and leggings. He had a bow laced over his breast, knives tucked into his vest, and a rapier strapped to his belt. As he mounted the cliff overlooking the seaside to the east where the sun was beginning to break over the horizon, Rainer watched the building that had flown directly over the city of Mecca Aish sink into the sea about five miles out to the North Sea. He hauled Mender to a stop and gave a series of sharp whistles. A falcon emerged from the wood nearby. Rainer gave his instructions to the falcon and gigged his horse into motion. The falcon soared high over the treetops as Rainer galloped through Golter's Pass. It screeched, calling the assistance of two other falcons. Rainer had ordered the assembly of his three troops at the shoreline near where the island had landed. He had ordered them to halt until he could scout the area. The three falcons split and distributed the order to the three packs of Asians who were already in motion from their gathering nooks in the highlands. Beatrice, Gome, and Mir on their black horses led their trios of soldiers down from the hills. Rainier met them as the three packs converged at the mouth of the highlands. He led the pack down the hill to the cliffs overlooking the shore. As they progressed north up the beach, they saw debris from the building washing up on the sand. Floating wreckage sopped on and off the beach with the waves. Rainier gave the hand signal for the corps to follow. The rest of the group remained behind as Gome, Vitris, and Mir followed Rainier down the slope to the beach. 
they found a young girl sprawled on her side by the water's edge. She wore peasant's clothing amidst the rubble from the building. Another figure was lying in the sand further north along the shoreline. The four dismounted their horses before their hooves could sink into the sand. They each drew their rapiers and approached the castaway. As they approached, Rainier noticed that the man was wearing black underarmor. He looked waterlogged but was still breathing. Rainier pushed the man over with the toe of his boot. Black beard stubble covered his cheeks. He coughed and opened his green eyes. A look of fear spread across his face at the sight of them. He scrambled to his feet as Rainier and the others backed away. The man lulled drunkenly from side to side, unable to stand. He collapsed in the sand and couldn't seem to rise again. He gasped for breath and clutched his chest. Rainer exchanged a look with Mir. The man looked up at each of them and then saw the girl on the back of Vitris's horse. His face somehow became more fearful at the sight of her. He crawled on all fours toward Rainier, protesting in the Alondranon tongue. She's, he tried, she's Marissa Narsis, he whispered. Rainier heard clearly. Though he didn't speak the common Alondron tongue, he knew the name Narsis, and he knew that meant one of them was royalty. Put him on a horse, Rainier told Mir in the Asian dialect. Mir and Vitris each took one of the fallen man's arms. He groaned as they carried him to the horses. Once they secured him to a horse, Rainier ordered them to return to the city. Will you be okay by yourself, sir? Gom asked. I'll be fine. I'll catch up shortly he said, looking to the water as more wreckage washed ashore. Rainier didn't know what he was looking for as he made his way back to the shoreline, but he felt the tug of curiosity. His people hailed from a desert port city. They were a resourceful people and made it accustomed to use everything they took before taking more, but they weren't considered scavengers. The allure of treasures and special trinkets had never been something that intrigued the Asians, other than Cruz, Rainer's brother and heir to the throne of Mecca Aish. He scanned the sea as it washed in and out. So much garbage, so much waste. Rainer watched as an object struck the sand with all the waves. At first, he thought his eyes were playing tricks on him, that whatever it was would disappear in a moment. But within a surge of waves, a crystal scepter washed ashore. The water drained through the sand beneath it. Other than a strange blue light shining from within the tip of the object, Rainer might not have even seen it lying against the sand. He picked up the scepter and looked at it closely. It glowed eerily, changing color to white light before extinguishing. Rainer noticed a thin crack running through the grain of the crystal. He found it fascinating. Cruz would appreciate it as a find. Rainer started up the hill and made his way home to Mecca Aish. Cruz looked down the side of the rifle at the doe trapped in the wooden cage across the fence nearby. He breathed out and fired. Blood popped from its neck and the creature collapsed, shaking as the last of its life bled out on the grass beneath the cage. Cruz put the smoking rifle on the display crate nearby and turned to Hagar, father of the House of Amine from Chryseis, Garrett, lieutenant commander of Narcissus's army, and Rocco, the leader of Dartus's merchant circle. Hagar shook his head. Doesn't matter how many times I see that weapon go off. I hate the sound and the look of it in the hands of our people. We've all seen the humans' guns, said Rocco. What is it that was supposed to break our foundations that you supposedly discovered? All of this, 
Cruz said in the common Alondron tongue, and waved around the room of human technology that he had collected since the fall of the human vessels. They had found the giant ship nearly 200 miles down the shore east of Mekaish. The city had felt the quake from the massive vehicle's crash. We're still locked out of most of their devices, Garrett said. That makes a lot of what you have here obsolete, he indicated the four-wheeler in the corner. Thank you for pointing that out, Garrett. The only reason this vehicle is here is so that you'll have a contrast from their technology to ours. If you'll follow me for a moment, please. Cruz walked forward through a door leading to a balcony overlooking the ocean below. Floating in the water in a line were boat contraptions that the Asians had created out of the wheels and walls of the four-wheelers. Very interesting, Rocco admired the ingenuity. They don't sink. You have to clear away some algae and seaweed and replace the tires now and then, but that's just general maintenance. We're looking to start a fleet once we recover more from the wreckage to the east, but we found some things that even Narciss probably hasn't seen. Follow me. The men re-entered the building, went downstairs, and entered a courtyard nearby. Sitting in the middle of the courtyard was one of the larger falcons from the Enigma. Several of the pillars holding up one of the walkways had to be removed in order for the men to clear it for the display space. You actually found one? Garrett said, fascinated by the vehicle as he paced around it. He took in its every shape. They will arrive with ships capable of scraping the stars. So the prophecy of McNatine goes. He breathed and met Cruz's eye. This isn't what I wanted to show you either. Cruz entered a room adjacent to the entrance to the courtyard. Yes, the humans have locked us out of most of their things, but that will soon change. Cruz stopped beside a terminal against the wall. He pressed a spot on the touchscreen and the wall came alive. The digital user interface came to life upon the wall. Hagar and Rocco took an instinctive step backward. Garrett stared determinedly at the wall that displayed words in the human language, requesting for the user's security password and clearance. Cruz shrugged and closed out the screen. We can't get it to do anything more than that, but I have a feeling if Narciss ever wanted to use the technology, he might pay a considerable price for some of these artifacts, as well as the further information we will be gathering as part of an ongoing investigation into the nature of these beings. Very interesting, Garrett said. Enough pattering. Let's move on to dinner and drink at the keep. Cruz smiled at everyone and led the way toward Mechaish's fortress. As they were leaving, Hagar met with Garrett's side. Do you know why this technology is in our hands and not still in the hands of their creators, Lieutenant Commander? He asked. Garrett shook his head. Because man was not meant to be separated from his planet, his environment. Look at them now. There are only a handful of them left. What has their technology done for them? And Amine continues to punish them for their blatant disregard for our sacred world. No, if we were wise, we would bury the humans and their devices, and speak nothing more of their ignorant ways. Keep it to yourself for now, but your way of thinking is not unlike King Surveys Narcissus, Garrett replied. He has been doing an ongoing investigation of his own. He is prepared to take considerable measures, should the conflict with the humans worsen. A relief to hear, said Hagar. The four men entered the busy streets of Mecca-Aish. Traders were just beginning to set up in the market for the day. The sun had just reached mid-morning as several Asian rangers trotted through the town. The two carried prisoners on the horses with them, one with royal brown hair and the other with black hair. The girl looked over. Her green-blue eyes met Garrett's. Garrett did a double-take. 
he had witnessed the unmistakable complexion of Marissa Narcissus. He pushed between Rocco and Cruz. He jogged as fast as his formal uniform would allow. Garrett reached the ranger's side as he got behind a merchant cart emanating the aroma of freshly cooked beef. This girl is the daughter of King Surveys Narcissus, Garrett yelled as he reached for Marissa. The ranger grabbed Garrett's hand and shoved him back. Garrett stumbled, aghast. Make your claim to the prince, Belatrofamul, the ranger said in the common tongue. He gigged his horse between the obstructive carts and weaved up to the royal stables. Garrett returned to Cruz's side and made his statement. Cruz nodded, concerned with the situation. He and the others returned to the fort keep. The girl was not in the prison or with the guards. Rocco found the cafeteria and stayed behind as Garrett and Hagar followed Cruz through the enormous keep that was designed to scatter invading troops if the city should ever fall to its last line of defense. At last, they entered the main corridor of the fort and made for the royal hall. King Zion of Mecca Aish sat in his high golden chair at the end of the hall with his head resting on his fist. He wore golden bands on his arms and legs beneath his gold-trimmed linen robe. An elaborate gold crown with the high points on the north, south, east, and west sat upon his head. His eyes were gray. Before him stood Rainer and the ranger that had carried the princess. She sat on her knees, her hands bound and head down beneath her dirty brown hair. Garrett, seeing this display of disrespect, marched ahead of Cruz. Zion lifted his head from his fist for long enough to snap his fingers. Two guards intercepted Garrett before he could get halfway to the two men and the princess. You cannot do this! That girl is Marissa Narcissus, Garrett stated. Cruz, remove this man from the hall, Zion ordered his son. Rainer glanced over his shoulder and watched as Cruz hauled Garrett back by his arm. Surveys Narcissus will hear of this, be certain of that, Garrett glared at King Zion. Do you truly believe you are above the laws of the land? Do you have any idea what you're doing here today? Zion narrowed his eyes upon Garrett. Calm down, Garrett, Cruz said in a hushed tone. We must assess the situation before we give her over to you. What is there to assess? Garrett demanded. I should be on my horse with that girl, taking the speed of Omne to Narcissus. There should be no question. Remove him from the hall, Zion said again. Cruz hauled Garrett out of the room. Two guards adjacent to Hagar met Cruz's eye in the main corridor. Cruz nodded at Garrett and the guards took each of his arms. What is this? Garrett asked. Since you have caused a significant disturbance this morning, you are to be escorted from the fort walls until we summon you. Have a good day, Garrett, Cruz said, and stepped back into the royal hall as the guards took Garrett away. He cried out in protest, but several guards pulled the doors closed behind Cruz. There was another prisoner, Rainer explained to his father, a man who seemed to know of the girl's status. He didn't appear to be more than a commoner. Is this all you found amidst the wreckage? Zion squinted at Rainier, searching him with his paranoid eyes. There was also this. Rainier removed the crystal scepter that was wrapped in a woolen cloth so as to protect it from the jostling of the ride. He held it by the handle and slowly unraveled the scepter until the crystal peered from the cloth. Once Rainier pulled away the cloth and everyone was able to behold the spectacle, the scepter blushed blue. King Zion's eyes grew wide. He sat up in his seat and leaned forward. Rainer stared at the scepter, mesmerized by its warmth and tranquility. 
Like light reflecting off water, lines and creases covered the radiated blue walls and faces of the royal hall of Mecha Aisha's fortress keep. Rainer looked around the room. The same expression covered everyone's face, the guards included. Marissa Narcissus had lifted her head to witness the artifact. Thinking it might be best to put the scepter away, Rainer wrapped the scepter in the cloth once more. Is it the humans? Zion asked, blinking. Everyone collectively exhaled once the scepter disappeared. I don't think so, Rainer answered. Has the girl ever seen it before? Zion asked. Marissa Narcissus lifted her head to meet Zion's eye. She shook her head. I've never seen that thing in my life, she said lowly in the common tongue. The king of the northern city looked to his son, Rainer, for translation. She's never seen it before, he replied. Ask her about the prisoner, Zion ordered. Do you know the man who is with you? Rainer asked. I don't know his name. I remember a face, but nothing more, Marissa Narcissus said. Rainer translated. So he is no one and she knows nothing. Zion stroked his chin. But she is perhaps not useless to us. Have the diplomat from Narcissus executed at once, he said in the common speech. Marissa gasped, eyes fixed upon Zion's. A smirk played on his lips. Let's treat our guest to our nicest prison cell. Why would you do this? Marissa choked. Your king will pay dearly for your return, and some gifts can't be given away freely, Zion remarked. What if Narcissus attacks in retaliation? Cruz asked, meeting his brother's side before their father. Other than the fool we just threw out, no one from Narcissus even knows she's here. The king won't retaliate until we present him with his daughter. In this way, we can give her over as courtesy. Surveys will pay a fair reward for her return, Zion said. What will we tell the men who come looking for their missing diplomat? Rainier wondered. Zion laughed. We aren't to blame for their lieutenant's clumsiness when he slipped from the cliffs in the highlands. Perhaps one of the trags startled his horse, causing him to fall. He was eaten by the wolves while camping for the night, attacked and murdered by bandits, slipped into the river. The possibilities are endless. We can release his horse along the road back to Crisius as if he were on his way through to Tartus. The girl will be returned on our terms when we are ready. Carry out the execution as ordered. And what of the other prisoner, the man we found? Rainer asked. We'll begin the interrogations this afternoon, said Zion. Once we've exhausted his usefulness, we'll put him in the virago and see how he fares. And, Cruz cleared his throat, what of this scepter Rainer found? Rainer glanced over his shoulder at Cruz, feeling a stab of worry at the greedy look upon his face. His eyes quickly took on the look of genuine interest and concern. Zion nodded. The scepter should be displayed on high for all of the town to witness. It is a find that reflects the growing fortune of our great city. That it is, my king, Cruz smiled. Rainer looked between the two. A wise decision, father, Rainer nodded to King Zion, whose complexion remained unchanged. For now, I'll have the soldiers place it in the personal treasury. Thank you for bringing it back with you, Rainier, Zion said. The guard, whose name Rainier knew to be Pinkos, approached and placed a hand upon the hilt of the scepter above Rainier's beneath the cloth. Their eyes met. Rainier knew the instinctive action was to release and keep moving, but something held him back. He felt the eyes of everyone in the room upon them. I'll have Pinkos place the scepter in the treasury, 
Zion repeated himself patiently. Why don't you and Cruz see to it that the guests are well accommodated before their departure? Rainer didn't move, and he didn't release. When Cruz placed his hand upon Rainer's shoulder, Rainer released the scepter to Pinkos and turned to leave the hall. Rainier, Zion said, stopping him at his first step. Rainer took a deep breath and made his way to his father's high seat. His father beckoned him closer. Rainer walked to his father's side. Zion leaned forward enough to put his lips to his son's ear. Execute the lieutenant and dispose of the body properly. Make sure you're not seen. Rainer closed his eyes, registering that he was to kill a diplomat from the capital city without being noticed and make his death look like an accident, each part of the task more difficult than the last. Make it done, Zion said. Yes, father, Rainer said and made his way out of the hall. Cruz followed at his side for a second, but Rainer continued past him, exiting the hall just as the guards opened the doors. Cruz met with Hagar outside the royal hall. Several guards hurried through and made their way into the city streets at the end of the corridor behind Rainier. Rocco found them at the mouth of the fortress entrance. Has anyone seen Garrett? Rocco asked. Garrett was offered a complimentary lodge at the Golden Jar Inn for his inconvenience earlier, said Cruz. Since there was a bit of a complication with the prisoners earlier, for the sake of ties and appearances, it would be appreciated if you two would give us time to work out any kinks with Narciss before you mention anything you might have heard or seen here in Mecca H this morning to anyone else. Rest assured, if the prisoner Rainer returned truly was King Survey's daughter, then she will be back in his care and company within the week. That is a relief, Hagar smiled. Yes, Cruz beamed. I wanted to show you two the best cocosuela you've ever tasted, captured straight from the highlands to the southeast. I hope you saved your appetite, Rocco. 3. Rainer sat on a box in the alley of a neighborhood that lay in the shadow of the fortress. He looked to the sky. Clouds made their way from one side of the blue bowl to the other. Birds twittered from their nests in the rooftops of the houses surrounding him. He hated murdering. It always made him feel dirty. Assassinating an ignorant noble seemed unnecessary. The immediate judgment made him question his father's methods, but that wasn't the first time his father had made a quick decision regarding the life of someone important. Zion had ended their mother's life on the basis that she may have singularly contracted a disease after returning from a three-day trip to her father's estate. He had never said anything, but Rainer believed his father would get what was coming to him for his decisions. Perhaps not in this life, unfortunately. Zion was a powerful leader, but his moral compass was skewed compared to that of his mother. His father's visions were foreign to those of the preceding rulers of Mecca-Aish. Beneath the patiently watching exterior was the paranoid incarnation of a deteriorating mind. Rainer clapped his knees and got to his feet. He had to comply, and he had to do it to the best of his ability. His father trusted no one else for these requests because, though he questioned the integrity of those requests, Rainer had never failed him. He made his way to the Red Bear Bar where the guards had likely escorted Garrett. Behind every powerful order is a back room where all the dirty happens. That was the Red Bear Bar for Mecca Aish. He didn't bother going in through the front. Rainer continued past the entrance to the bar and went to the back. He stood with his back to a boarded door and kicked hard on the base with his heel. Footsteps thumped from the other side. Rainer stepped out of the way as the door swung open. He stepped inside and descended a spiral staircase to the immediate right. 
Through several halls and storage rooms, he finally found the room where two guards kept watch on a very harassed-looking Garrett. So you're going to keep the princess hostage? What's your next course of action? I'm sure this will be entertaining to hear, Garrett said sarcastically. Rainer didn't reply. He patted his chest and looked around the room. The guards watched him, curious. Rainer left the room and sorted through some sheets and wood stacked in the corner of a different room. No luck. He was about to climb the stairs when he found a stack of lumber tucked under the staircase. He returned with a rectangular piece of wood. He marched toward Garrett as he stuttered in protest. Smashing the wooden bar across Garrett's chest, Garrett grabbed the board reflexively. Rainer shattered his left fist on Garrett's jaw before he could do anything. Garrett collapsed to the floor, disoriented. Rainer stamped on his chest hard. The guards moved in and began helping. Garrett cried out as the men kicked him repeatedly. Blood poured from his face from the cuts their boots made. They broke bones beneath their weight as they crushed the life out of him. By the time they were finished, Garrett was a twitching, bloodied corpse beneath his formal attire. Wait until dark, panted Rainier, then take him to Golder's Bridge and throw his body down the cliffs. Release his horse at the mouth of the Gap of Ceres near Alacrity Field to the north of Crisius. Our story is he left town in the night for a health emergency that could only be remedied by Normus and Crisius. He never made it. The guards nodded. Rainer left and returned to the fort keep. Jonathan sat in his cell, looking at his bound hands. He closed his eyes, concentrated, nothing. He had been trying to make something happen for the last hour with no success. He felt sick, not the kind of sick he had felt upon his first day on Alondronon. This felt like his immune system was fighting off a virus. His fingers shook. He had tried to stand, but couldn't manage that either. They had given him some pants, but that was the limit of their hospitality. He had not seen Marissa Narcissus, but one of his interrogators, wearing a considerable amount of jewelry and fine cloth, asked if the girl he was found with was indeed Marissa Narcissus. Too exhausted and uncomfortable to come up with a deviant plan or course of action, Jonathan told them that she was, to his knowledge, Marissa Narcissus of the Kingdom of Narcissus, and that he had been sent to rescue her. The man didn't take the information positively or negatively. He simply nodded and left Jonathan to the solitude of his cell, a stone room with a hole for a toilet and a bed mounted on the wall with a severely worn mattress. Jonathan had gotten used to living in filthy places. Of the towns he had fought in while working for Dartus, the living quarters for the contenders were little more than prison cells. A guard came by and slid dinner under the door into his cell, the gray gruel that every prison fed their prisoners. Jonathan had eaten it, he would eat it today, and he knew that it wouldn't be the last time. His will to live was at an all-time low, but he knew so long as he held on, things might tip into his favor again. The thought made him want to laugh, but he knew the act would agitate his sore diaphragm. He'd been holding on for so long, trying to do everything right and be a good person, but Alondronon continued to crap on him like it had since the moment he had arrived. Hold on, he muttered, shaking his head and staring at the wall beyond his dirty hands. He thought about suicide, how easy it would be. How if he could get access to a gun for less than ten seconds, he'd be out and the game would be over. A simple move of the arm and tug of the finger. The only problem is that it would be forfeiting. 
One of the few things that his father had successfully instilled in him was that giving up is never an option. Jonathan resigned to treading on so long as his body continued to function. Based on the signs his body was beginning to show, however, his days were coming to an end. Jonathan scooped a palm of sand from the floor and let it spill between the cracked landscape of his left palm. He raised his hand to eye level and focused on each grain of sand. There were dozens of colors and forms of sediment from all over the region. He took the index and middle fingers of his opposite hand and rubbed them together above the mound of grains. A dull ache spread from his forehead to the sides of his cranium as several of the grains jumped, seemingly of their own accord, toward his fingertips. Frustrated, Jonathan tossed the sand away and dropped his head to his knees. Having no other course of action, Jonathan ate the gruel and sat in isolation while listening to the howls of the other prisoners in the cells surrounding him. Zion sat in his comfortable chair in his library, reading the same volume of Herbin Fontaine that he'd been working on for the last four months. He read the same sentence over and over, realizing that he wasn't making any progress, but continued trying to force through the mental block. His mind kept returning to the scepter that Rayner had brought home with the prisoners. How peculiar it had made him feel inside, beckoning him, inspiring him. It was just an object. The teaching of his people claimed that trinkets held no direct power. No item held power other than what the mind believed. Wealth was not something to be accumulated, but observed. Prosperity only exists in contrast to unrest, profit to poverty, life to death. But those foundations that he had built his life and city upon had come into question the moment his eyes saw that gently glowing scepter. Zion set the detailed volume of king-making aside and got to his feet. He hadn't decided to go yet. The idea of creeping about to see the scepter at this hour seemed pointless, but a greedy part of him knew that his eyes wouldn't close so long as he did not lay them upon the scepter for just one moment. He hurried into the dimly lit corridor. His guards accompanied him to the treasure room where he dismissed them. Zion entered, seeing the covered scepter atop a pile of other goods and treasures the guards had confiscated recently. He approached, wary of the rapid rise in his heart rate as the blood pumped into his head and through his body. The cloth covering it was soft to the touch. Zion clutched the handle of the scepter and pulled the cloth away. Cerulean light erupted throughout the room like water, coating everything in the treasure room in a bright shade of blue. Zion gave a cry that was a mixture of horror and exhilaration. The guards outside hurried in, but he waved them away. He held the scepter up as the light moved within. It was alive, living and breathing within its glass confines. For a minute, King Zion felt an enormous sensation of ecstasy course through his body. He stared into the icy depths of the scepter. The light began to fade to a navy blue. No, don't go, Zion whispered, but the light extinguished within. He searched for it, pressing his nose to the glass. It was gone, whatever it was, but he could still feel some remnant of its energy from within. Sir, one of the guards said from behind him. Zion, furious with the interruption, turned around and glared at the man. I'm sorry, but it's been two hours since the light went out. I left to go on break a while back, but you're still here. Zion's face fell. He blinked at the scepter in his hands. Thank you, Penkos. That will be all. 
He gave the scepter a final glance before he threw the cloth back over the glass and placed it on top of the other items. King Zion hurried to bed. Marissa Narsus sat in a chair opposite to Cruz, who was leaning against the wall with his arms crossed. The guard, Ivers, stood by the door. He had not stopped staring at her since he had arrived. Their faces were lit by the dim light of a single torch. The situation was designed to incite fear in her, a dominance tactic that only men would find appropriate. They wanted to give her the impression that what could happen in this room on this night was completely open-ended, assuming she didn't comply and answer their questions truthfully. You keep saying you're not Marissa Narciss, Cruz said to Marissa, but Lydia, a poor girl from the poor district of Narciss who looks similar to the king's daughter in many ways. Marissa nodded. Cruz continued. You say this, as the king's daughter has been missing for nearly a week. There's a massive search on the continent of Ire, and a significant reward out for her return. I'm not Marissa Narciss, she said through gritted teeth, forcing herself to believe the lie, to make the lie truth. In this, and in this place, she was to herself and all of these people, no matter what anyone tried to tell her, Lydia, daughter of Baron and Cynthia, a poor couple who moved from the farmlands to Narciss to try and make it in the city. She had created them and their story when she formed the persona of Lydia. The man we found you with. He said you were, by his knowledge, Marissa Narciss. A lieutenant of the Narciss army claimed that you were Marissa. Maybe you're not Marissa Narciss, but you look like her, and anyone can be made to look royal. You can keep telling your lies, shrugged Cruz. You'll fetch a fair price one way or the other. Okay, Marissa said in a monotone voice, glaring at her captor. He stared at her, along with Ivers. It would be most appreciated if you would play along with us and say that you are Marissa Narciss. I'm Lydia, but you want me to be Marissa Narciss, she said in her deadpan tone. I see a lot of people gaining something out of this deal, but I'm the one making all the sacrifices. Where's my cut? Where's my incentive to do what you say? Oh, you need incentive, Cruz's eyes flared. Fair incentive, Marissa said coldly. I'm sure you could do whatever you want to me, but if you want me to comply at the right times willingly, you might send your hound out of here, bring a little more light, a fresh attitude, and then maybe we can do some real negotiating. After all, how else would you treat Marissa Narciss? A look of sadness spread over Cruz's face that made Marissa feel uncomfortable. Unfortunately, I don't have time to cater to your every need and whim. I have an appointment that I must attend to, so I'll have to leave you in Ivor's care for the time being. This is not a negotiation. When I get back, perhaps you'll find some way to look at your circumstances with a fresh attitude. He grinned and clapped Ivers on the shoulder. Be sure not to rough her up too badly. Ivers grinned as Cruz disappeared through the door. You don't want to do this. You don't even want to try, Marissa said, emotionless, eyes never leaving Ivers' dark ones in the dim light. This'll be fun. Ivers said, hitching his pants up by his belt above his groin repulsively. Marissa's expression darkened. Ivers grabbed her shirt front and threw her against the table in the far side of the room. She put a foot on the table's edge as he approached. He grinned for a moment, and then his face went dour. As he approached, he saw something shine in her hands from the flickering torchlight. When he saw that her hands weren't bound, it was already too late. Marissa Narciss kicked off the table, the back of her skull smashing into Ivor's chin. She turned and slashed the knife she had stolen from Cruz across his face. 
He gave an aggressive yell before he drew his fist back to put her down. She grabbed his fist as it flew by her and, sidestepping Ivers, she used his inertia to guide his cranium into the table's edge. With the knife in both hands, Marissa brought it down upon the back of Ivers' neck. She felt the handle of the knife shatter as the blade connected with his spinal cord. It was a garbage knife, she knew that much about knives, but it had done the job. Blood oozed down Ivers' back beneath his mesh leather uniform. She immediately made for the grate beneath the table she had seen on her way into the interrogation room. It pried away from the wall easily, and she was able to remove a second grate leading into the sewer channels beneath the cells. It wasn't an exit, but she used Ivers' key to open the interrogation room door before slipping into the sewers, pocketing the keys as she went. They would think she had escaped and was hiding somewhere in the fort, but they probably wouldn't guess that she was still beneath the prison cells. Marissa would take whatever advantage she could get. Cruz, donned in an all-black reinforced travel cloak, rode his horse across the darkened landscape toward the western coast. Massive black clouds bunched overhead, sending sprays of rain over the grassy valley. To the southeast, Cruz could just make out the castle atop Crisius peeking over the horizon. He galloped toward the massive vine and ivy-covered columns that had once been part of the ancient kingdom and their glorious highways. The columns marched in a line from the gap leading to the ocean to the north, all the way across the western coast to the south, scraping the rolling black clouds with their might. As a child, Cruz had used this field and the beauty of these columns as inspiration. He wanted to bring glory back to his kingdom. He wanted to elevate his society enough to make a true impact upon the world. He wanted to see his people create something to rival these columns, monuments to challenge the great society that they had once represented. What is life but a time to leave your mark on the world? He saw Yurt's camp, his firelight making the shadow of the column he was behind dance across the valley. Cruz gigged his horse until the incline became too steep, and then he hiked up the slope until he was standing at the edge of the campsite Yurt had created for himself. Yurt sat amidst stacks of mail he had intercepted from the post along the road to the east. You're back early, Yurt growled, eyeing the blunt knife in his hand with his one good eye. He was balding, but he had long enough hair at the back to put it up into a ponytail. He wore his old academy uniform from Ethan and Dartus, which had been reduced to rags in the last five years. You're taking too long, Cruz dismounted his horse and approached the camp. Setting up takes time. It'll be done within a week, Yurt said. Here, save me some trouble and cut this open, would you? He tossed a package to Cruz. My patience is at an end, Cruz pointed the package at Yurt. You have until tomorrow, or the next time I see your wife. She won't be able to stop being happy to see you. Of that I will ensure. Yurt's expression darkened. Why so impatient? Because I don't like having to feed and clean rubbish to get you to do this job. I want it done so you can have your family back, and so I can give you the money. You could have just not kidnapped my family to begin with. Yurt glowered at the fire in front of him. You're the greatest bounty hunter Ethan has ever molded, and I need great in order for this job to go effectively. You need someone who's got nothing to lose. But you have everything to lose. I don't want to hurt your family, Yurt. I just know that you won't do this job if you don't have proper incentive. I also have to protect myself from you. What's to stop me from gutting you in your sleep a few years down the line after I get my money and my family back? If the amount I've offered you isn't enough, I'll double it. 
I want this job done, and I want it done by tomorrow. Double the money and it's yours. You can have your family back, and you'll never hear from me again. Just do the deed and it's all over. How do I know you won't just kill me? Yurt asked. I wouldn't do that. We're friends, right? Cruz shrugged. Not in the least. The only way I'll have you killed, Yurt, is if you don't have this job finished by the weekend. Fine, you son of a bitch. Open that package and get the hell out of here already. Yurt pointed back toward Mecha-Aish. Cruz rolled his eyes and reached for the knife in its sheath at his hip. His fingers closed upon nothing. He looked back at the empty sheath on his belt, put two and two together, and tightened his fist. He threw the package back to Yurt and made for his horse. Tomorrow night, no exceptions. Yurt made a rude gesture at him as he mounted his horse and spurred the creature down the slope. Cruz started across the valley from whence he came. 4. Jonathan turned the tin dinner plate in his hands, trying to think of a way to use it to his advantage. He could try to turn it into a key and open the prison door, but where would he run? He could barely stand. The idea of trying to navigate the wilderness was laughable. Zion's men would find him within the afternoon. He couldn't climb or jump or run if he needed to make a quick escape. No, his escaping and action-filled days were over. His mortality had finally caught up with him, so it was time to face responsibility. If it turned out that Zion returned him to Narsus and surveys found him guilty for the kidnap of Marissa, then so be it. That's just the way things go. It was a time in his life where he had to accept his fate, even if it meant death. Hey, a voice filled Jonathan's cell. How'd you do all that crazy stuff before? He looked at the door. There were no feet standing on the other side from what he could see through the slot where they slid the food. He heard a laugh. It was definitely a girl. The girl's voice continued. Don't act all confused. You know what I'm talking about. You totally beat the crap out of that creepy wizard. I only performed as I could at the time, Jonathan said aloud. The simple act of pushing air through his vocal cords caused him a fit of coughs. What happened to you? You were a lot less... weak? Jonathan gave a raspy chuckle. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened. Can't say I knew what happened to begin with. What do you mean? I mean, one day I'm my idea of normal, and the next I can carry five to ten times my own weight. One morning I'm a champion over many, and the following afternoon I'm some wizard's life source. Within a day, I'm so weak I can't even move. Do you think this recent change in ability had something to do with what the wizard did to us? The girl asked. Jonathan didn't answer at first. He realized that he was talking to Marissa Narciss. The understanding made him want to change the way he spoke to her, but then he realized she probably wouldn't want special treatment. He considered her question. Other than me, you're the only other person who's escaped from Norhawk's Manor. Did you notice any loss or gain of ability? Marissa moved beneath the floor. Don't think so. Her voice was a murmur as she fiddled with the grate at the opposite end of the room. It's me, then. Something happened to me in that manner, and it may be killing me now. Is there anything I can do? She asked, her voice more clear now. Not unless you can get me feeling back to normal. Hell, I'd take normal on Earth over this any day, he said, knowing she wouldn't understand what he was talking about. What you can do for me is you can escape from this city and live. Try to make this world a better place. Is that what you would do? She returned to the other side of the room. Jonathan remembered his dreams from within his state under Norhawk's control. He had seen a future in that dream. 
one where blood poured from the heavens, and he had used the black hole that brought the Enigma to Alondron on as a transport to unleash a massive spatial assault upon Earth and its solar system. Something inside of him was harboring a darkness that made him question everything he had once believed in wholeheartedly. Long ago, he would have done anything to say aloud he always did the right thing. But the right thing wasn't going to fix the world, at least not here on Alondronon. And the right thing didn't fix the social problems on Earth in the earlier part of the human's technological development. Affirmative action by every man, woman, and child made changes possible on Earth. Deep down, he knew that if he committed to doing what he formerly thought was the right thing, he would die. If he wanted to live, he was going to have to live for himself, and the right thing would have to be redefined on Alondronon, by force. No, he said in a low but solid tone. His fingers curled into fists resting on his knees. I'm afraid that's not what I would do at all. Are you still there? Yes, her muffled voice came from nearby. She became clearer as she moved closer. I'm just trying to get the latch on this grate. It isn't a very smart design. There's a tiny lever that just clicks in and you're not supposed to be able to reach it from inside the cell. Both of yours feel like they're rusted in place. Figures, Jonathan coughed. You shouldn't be messing with that. You should be trying to find a way out of here. What kind of friend would I be if I just left you here? She asked. Jonathan didn't understand the question. She was royalty, but she cared about him like any good friend would. The personality trait of compassion didn't add up to her stature, nor would he have expected such from someone directly related to Surveys Narciss, the man who had sent him on this ridiculous suicide mission. I hate to be blunt, Marissa, but I'm not worth your jeopardizing your potential freedom. You need to leave, tonight. If you think you're the first person to figure out a way to get down there, then you'd be mistaken. This is their house. Marissa? he asked. There was no response. She had gone. Jonathan took a deep breath and looked down at his hands. Zion's night was full of enlightening dreams. In his visions, he soared across the great lands of Alondronon. He swam into what he was certain could be none other than the Great Lake of Epitris, a lake within the northwestern continent of Van Roe that was so vast it had to be considered an ocean. Something there called him. It took a part of him from inside and placed it at the bottom of the lake. He would not be whole until this piece was recovered. Otherwise, he was filled with an ecstasy he could not comprehend. The feelings dissolved when he woke. Jonathan had slipped into rest for what felt like only a few minutes before he was hoisted to his feet by two guards. Every muscle and joint ached as they shoved him through the halls of the fortress, pushing him to move faster and stop shuffling. If they knew he was in pain, they didn't care. Jonathan was brought before Cruz, one of the king's sons. He was smiling knowingly as the guards shoved Jonathan to his knees. He would have stood if he could, but he barely had the strength to lift his arms. Cruz stared at him for a while, considering him as he stroked the black hairs running down his chin to his goatee. I know who you are, Jonathan Tabith, Cruz nodded, sporting a grifter's smirk. How long did you think it would take us to figure it out? A week? Two weeks? You people from the big cities. The network, you know. Think you've got an entitlement to everything, even your privacy. Do you have any idea how many times the name Jonathan Tabith comes up on your programs? I see it all the time when I try to access your terminals. 
And how interesting that Jonathan Tabith, the inventor of that massive thing over there, cruise waved toward no direction in particular, he was drunk. Jonathan could only barely figure it, but the lax air that Cruz radiated was anything but genuine. Regardless, the fact that he knew more than any other Alondron on the planet made him a major liability in Jonathan's life. Cruz continued, He also happens to be the current reigning champion of the Virago Arena Battles. How did that happen? He squinted at Jonathan. You came here from some other planet and you just dominate the natives like a badass. That's right, I know your rhetoric. I'm even familiar with some of your terminology. I've been a busy bee, Jonathan, researching your little lives from your perfect world and society. What's your damn point? Jonathan croaked. He didn't even recognize the sound of his own voice anymore. I need you, Jonathan. I have equipment from your ship and you've piqued my interest. You're going to show me how to get inside, and not just a little. You're going to give me everything that will allow me full access to all the wells of knowledge in that massive machine of yours. What good could that possibly do you? Jonathan glared at him. Whatever I can use to sell to our benevolent King Narciss. But you know what the biggest kicker of them all is? Cruz asked without giving Jonathan time to answer. It's that you're going to give me all of this information, or else I'm going to throw you into our Virago. I know you're not of this world or this society. How do you really feel about executing others? Does it make you happy? Does it make you feel good inside? Screw off, Jonathan said through gritted teeth. Cruz took a drink from the goblet by his hand and made the bitter face of someone who wishes to say something quickly. What the hell happened to you? He swallowed. You should be able to kill me six times over before I can hit the ground, but you can't even move. Is it something in the air around here? A presence that just infects you. Jonathan stared at Cruz's determined eyes. Maybe you were always a myth. One of those legends that's just too good to be true, Cruz said, goading Jonathan to bite. He didn't. Cruz got to his feet and rounded the table that stood between them. He stood over Jonathan in his gold-trimmed white gown. Jonathan noticed for the first time that he was wearing black eyeliner and other makeup on his face. My voice is the only one that can access those programs you're talking about, Jonathan said. And you can throw me in the arena if you want. I'm not telling you shit. Guards, Cruz snapped and turned his back to Jonathan. Very trusting of you, yelled Jonathan, knowing that I'm the only one who can access those programs but still throwing me into the arena. You must think I have an ace up my sleeve. Do you have an ace up your sleeve, Jonathan? Cruz asked. He turned around to face him from the back of the room as the guards hauled him away. You'd better hope so, Jonathan coughed. Pinkos realized that Zion didn't rise at his usual time. He gave him a few more minutes before entering his royal chamber. Zion was awake, but he sat on the edge of his large golden bed, staring straight ahead without blinking, and without so much as the slightest motion of an in or out breath. It was the closest to a statue Pinkos had ever seen a person. Zion, having somehow sensed Pinkos watching, got to his feet and turned to Pinkos. Assemble a group of eight, he said, furrowing his brow. Sixteen. Assemble a group of thirty-two men. He turned and leveled his gaze upon Pinkos. He'd gotten very little sleep. Thirty-two men? Pinkos rolled his wrist, awaiting the rest of the command. Send a fleet of thirty-two men east, by boat, to the land of Van Roe. Pick out a suitable leader, and I will give him my private instruction. As you wish, sir. And Pinkos, Zion added. 
Make sure this remains quiet. Of course. Pinkos nodded and left the chamber. The guards pushed Jonathan into a dusty, dilapidated arena with rafters blotting out most of the sun. The spaces where the sun did break through were so bright to Jonathan that he had to shield his eyes from the rays. Hundreds of people were crowded around the arena's stands, watching and screaming. So many didn't have teeth, and more the weathered complexion of people who work for most of the day and have had to most of their lives. Cruz was running him through the weakest divisions of the Viragu that they had available in Mecha Aish. If he died here, he would be nothing more than a carcass in the gutters. Two lanky men emerged from the door on the opposite side of the arena. They looked as if they hadn't eaten in several days. The corners of their rib cages were poking out above the thin tube of their stomachs. Their grimy pants hung from their waists and neither had shoes. I couldn't let you have too much of an advantage, Cruz called, beaming from the top of the stands. Jonathan looked for a weapon, looked for the equipment area and saw none. Oh, and by the way, this is a pure hand-to-hand brawl, meaning there are no weapons and anything goes. Jonathan ambled to the middle of the arena. The other two men did the same. One of them laughed. This is going to be easy. He can barely stand up. You may begin when ready, Cruz announced. The older of the two on Jonathan's left flexed his gnarled fingers. Jonathan watched them between the rays of blinding light. The one on the right struck first. Jonathan pushed his arm back and threw a punch as hard as he could into the man's side. Thinking he'd made some kind of impact, he felt the horror of knowing otherwise. The man tackled Jonathan to the ground and began lashing as fast and as hard as he could. Jonathan took the battering as the other brought his fists down hard upon Jonathan's flailing legs. Grabbing the younger man's testicles, Jonathan shoved him off and kicked the other in the chin with his bare heel. He was able to get to his feet so he could circle the two who looked like they could go on for the rest of the night. Jonathan's entire body hurt from the little effort he had exerted so far. The elder jogged for Jonathan. He came at him, but Jonathan moved to the side and shoved him as hard as he could. The younger threw a punch into Jonathan's stomach that doubled him over. Jonathan instinctively grabbed the man's neck and slammed all his weight onto the knee he brought into the man's belly. Pain flooded through his leg as if he had broken something. The older man grabbed Jonathan's leg and tugged him to the ground. The agony in his spine hurt more than any pain he had felt so far. Jonathan felt them stepping on him and kicking him, but he couldn't get up. After the world dissolved into a numb monotony of beatings, the two men parted from Jonathan as Cruz approached. You're nothing like champion material, Jonathan. I should call you the glass warrior with the way you look out here. I wouldn't even pit you against someone as pathetic as you. I'd just cut your throat and be done. Jonathan murmured. He had bitten his tongue somewhere during the skirmish that had easily been the biggest loss he had sustained. If not for Cruz's interference, he'd be dead. What was that? Cruz put a finger to his earlobe. Jonathan swallowed some of the spit and blood by accident, and then met Cruz's eye. Then do it, he articulated to the best of his ability. I'm afraid I can't do that. On top of knowing who you are, Jonathan, I also know what you were assigned to do. You were supposed to bring the princess back to Narsus. Funny thing about princesses, they sometimes go missing. Ours went missing sometime last night, and while I don't think you had anything to do with it, something tells me that she's not going to be leaving the city unless you're with her. A debt is a debt, and she is most definitely in yours by now. 
she wouldn't have survived this long otherwise. Whatever hold you think I have on Marissa Narciss, it's garbage, Jonathan said. Be that as it may, you're my little lucky charm until she's found. I also have work for you to do whenever you're ready. But every day that you don't help me, I'm going to set you against a different opponent for my own personal entertainment. Sound like fun? Good. Guards escort our guest to his cell where he can think about our proposal until tomorrow, or this afternoon, I haven't decided yet. Two guards picked Jonathan up by each arm and walked him off the field. Jonathan passed out on the floor in his cell as soon as he got back. 5. Thirty-two men on horseback stood in block formation in the field outside Mecca Aish. The sun was directly overhead at midday. Fredston and Tremaine were the two who stood at the head of the pack. They were to remain at the ready until commanded otherwise. Zion galloped on his horse out to the field, his guards moving closely behind. Directing his horse along the front row of ten, Zion came to a halt beside Fredston. Good to see you, soldier. The king shook his hand. He leaned close, so far that Fredston thought he might fall off his horse. The note in my hand is your assignment, he whispered. You are to tell no one of your duty, even if you take the secret to your grave. I won't tell anyone a thing, Fredston affirmed. If you succeed, I'll make sure you're well compensated upon your return. Good luck. The king nodded. Fredston bowed his head as the king gigged forward. Ride out when ready, the king called and hurried up the road by the field back toward the city. Fredston opened his fist and read the words written on the page. Next to them was a shaded circle. He squinted, reread the note, and looked up to see the king on his horse fade into the distance at the end of sight. Fredston now understood why the quest was to be kept a secret. What King Zion wanted was that of fairy tales. If Zion had a valid reason for them to go searching for this item, then it must have been of significant importance. Fredston could not refuse his orders, so he had no choice but to give the signal to ride out. After handing over his horse's reins to the stable hand, Zion and his guards made their way through the fort to the treasure room. There, Zion instructed the guards to carry the largest pedestal they had available to Mecca Aish's overlook, the balcony that oversaw the whole of Mecca Aish, where the king or one of his sons presented their arguments, speeches, and plans for action. It was also a place where everyone could see the capital gains of their ruler's efforts. Zion instructed his guards to position the scepter upon the overlook so that the whole of the city could witness it. Something stirred within him as he watched the scepter upon the pedestal. It seemed to connect with him as if it understood its destiny. It glowed royal blue, casting the city in the eerie blue radiance. The citizens from the city below gathered beneath the scepter to look upon its majesty. For a long time, everyone stared at the scepter with increasing awe. Beneath the overlook, the people returned to their lives and duties. Above it, the guards stood with Zion for the afternoon as he gazed at the scepter endlessly. A bead of sweat dripped from Jonathan's forehead and became a ball of sand as it hit the ground by the glass shiv Jonathan had been constructing since he returned from his first round in the Virago. He had about an inch sliver of glass that he had made completely by telekinesis. If he concentrated hard enough, he could piece together the individual grains of sand and fuse their molecular structure to make glass. It was taking every ounce of energy he had in reserve, but he had to do something in order to protect himself the following day. 
The headache swam up his brainstem and crouched upon his cranium as the pain began to screw into his skull. Pressing a hand to his forehead, Jonathan laid on his back and watched the light of the evening begin to fade through the narrow slit of the window at the top of the cell. He heard movement from somewhere nearby. Dinner had already been served. It lay in a cold porridge at the base of the bowl by the door. He clambered to the door and peered through the food slot. He saw no one in either direction. Marissa had returned. Jonathan hurried to the grate and peered down to see her face and green-blue eyes looking back at him. Go to the other grate, whispered Marissa. We should be able to get it open with enough force. There's something I want to show you. Jonathan crawled to the other grate in the floor of his cell. He tugged on it as Marissa pushed. It didn't budge at first, but then it began to shimmy loose. Marissa gave it one final shove before it screeched open. Jonathan looked back at the door and waited for a guard to approach. None came. He dropped down into the sewers of the cell, gently closing the grate behind him. He coughed into his sleeve until he was doubled over and red in the face. It took him a minute to be ready to follow Marissa. She waited patiently and then led the way through the tunnels. The ceiling was only four feet tall, so Jonathan had to crouch the entire way. They waded through the knee-deep shit and piss that the prisoners of Mecha Aish had ejected both recently and not so recently. They made their way under the cells, hearing prisoners weeping, raving, and laughing. They stopped seeing prisoners in the cells they passed. The cells looked dusty and unkempt. Some were filled with rubble from the crumbling walls, others with equipment and crates, storage for the castle fort. The rooftops disappeared, allowing hallowed rays of evening sunlight to cascade through the dust of the cells above. They came to a cell where there were no grates and climbed out through the opening. Marissa led him through the corridor outside the cell to the end of the line of cells. They entered the final cell that had only part of the outer wall, allowing them to see part of the fort beyond the gap. For a moment, the two stood in silence, basking in the freedom of fresh air and a clear view of the azure sky. Jonathan approached the edge of the cell to look across the way. Marissa pointed at something on the other side. Below the last cell in the line was Mecha-Aish's overlook. Standing on a pedestal in the center of the overlook for all of the city to see was the glowing blue scepter. Jonathan stared at it for a long time, not certain of what to make of the feeling it gave him. What is that? he asked. I don't know. I saw the king make the guard put it up there earlier. It started glowing blue and hasn't stopped since, Marissa said. Jonathan stroked his chin, watching the scepter warily. Marissa gasped. Back here, she said, pulling Jonathan into the shadows as Rainier, the man who had initially captured them, exited the fort and strode toward the balcony. He carried a drink in hand. His other hand appeared to be bandaged. The look on his face was contemplative. Jonathan sat at the base of the wall and looked over as Marissa watched from the darkness of the doorway. Rainer took a sip of his drink, feeling the alcohol burn his throat. He walked toward the scepter, thinking about the strangeness of it, the mysterious nature of such a beautiful item. He approached until he stood five feet from it. There, the azure radiance cast his form in its light. A cool relaxation swept over him that could have been the alcohol, or it could have been something else. For a long time he stared at the light, seeing only blue, as the sun dipped behind the buildings to the west, bringing the evening a step closer to night. He felt a tight hand on his shoulder. 
Rainer instinctively went for the knife in his holster as he felt the blade slice through his lower back and pierce his innards. The pain was so mortifying that he could not even cry out. A burst of adrenaline filled Rainier. He grabbed his assailant, a weasley old man with only one good eye, and the two wrestled toward the ledge of the balcony. With every bit of strength Rainer could muster, he shoved the old man into the ledge. The old man gave a decrepit howl before toppling over to his doom. Rainier collapsed to his knees, the blades still sticking out of his back. It had all happened and ended so quickly. It couldn't have been more than a ten-second battle, but Rainer was left mortally wounded. His eyes flicked over the fort. There was no one in sight. It had been set this way. Someone had orchestrated this event. Perhaps not the death of the assassin, but Rainer's death most definitely. Rainer collapsed on the ground beneath the scepter. Without a hitch, Cruz said, approaching from the west entrance to the upper courtyard. He had his scimitar drawn and ready. You even saved me the trouble of having to explain to the assassin that his family was already dead. You did this? Rainer asked, fury still in his voice as he backed up against the pedestal. Of course I did, said Cruz. Who else would have the gall to try to kill the favorite son? I see the way father calls you forward to take care of the more sensitive assignments. He trusts you far more than he trusts me, which means he will choose you as his heir. What does it even matter? Rainer demanded. I have no interest in ruling this city. I'd have handed it to you inevitably anyway. I couldn't take that chance. You know that. It's nothing personal. Cruz moved in on Rainier. Rainer pushed himself up the pedestal, glaring at his half-witted brother who thought he could just murder his problems away. You goddamn fool! Rainer yelled as Cruz stabbed his younger brother through the stomach with the scimitar. Sorry, dear brother, Cruz said. Shaking, Rainer's fists tightened. He closed his hand upon the scepter. As the last of Rainer's strength faded from his body, he used it to throw all his energy into ending Cruz's unfortunate existence. Rainer smashed the scepter across his brother's face, shattering it to pieces. From their position in the cell, Jonathan and Marissa watched the entire scene unfold. They watched Rainer defeat his assailant and break the scepter across his brother's face. After the collision, Jonathan's eyes widened. A blue orb, no larger than the size of one's closed fist, emerged from the broken end of the scepter and bounced across the stone floor. The moment Jonathan laid eyes on it, he knew that it was the source of everything. It rolled into the corner of the steps, but its light covered the balcony terrace. Rainier breathed heavily until his breathing slowed. His brother lay in a heap beside him unconscious. That's it! Jonathan gasped and slammed a gnarled fist against the wall's edge. Marissa looked at him curiously. What are you talking about? That thing is draining all my energy. I'd bet anything that's what it is. Marissa appeared unconvinced. Look, I can't explain how I know, but as soon as I saw it, I could feel it. I can feel its hold on me. That thing is why I can't do anything right now. Get rid of it, and I can personally guarantee your safety back to Narciss. I can't promise I can get to it, said Marissa. I can try. But even if I could get it without getting caught, where would I take it? I... Jonathan's eyes darted in thought. I'll have to get back to you on that. We need to get you back to your cell before the guards figure out you've gone missing. I think the guards are indisposed of for the time being, Jonathan said. You go back to your cell and rest. I'll figure out how to get that orb, but I don't want the guards to catch on to where I'm hiding. All right. 
Jonathan exited the cell from where he entered. When he realized that Marissa wasn't following, he returned to his cell on his own. Harold Rowe sat on the balcony of his flat, watching the rain fall across a lockerty field beneath the gray storm clouds stretching to the western horizon. Thoughts floated through his mind as he drank a glass of warm milk and whiskey. He formulated some of his best ideas during the rainy seasons. He had been contemplating a thought for several days. He had taken part in several of the Virago events in both Narcissus and Crisius since Jonathan's success over Crisius's former champion Remus. While it had been well known that Jonathan was hired by the king to find the princess of Narcissus, Harold expected him to have returned by now. As each day passed and his absence persisted, the king of Narcissus eventually considered Jonathan either dead or gone. His caricature was put on the bounty wall as a person of interest who was to be either detained or brought to the authorities dead if possible. Many of Narcissus's top bounty hunters went in search of Jonathan, but after several days of turning up not so much as a single clue, he was presumed dead. With Marissa Narcissus also missing, the public's faith in her being alive dwindled. The king had hired dozens of troops to turn over every stone in the dusty fields to the south, scoured the forgotten halls of Trey Mountain, and even dragged the Gohorn River. Surveys eventually assembled an army to seek out the tower hideout of the Cornix gang, Krieg's Tower, within the Antecitus field. Once they arrived, there was no one to be found in the tower. Their search around the area didn't turn up anything of use. That there were no bodies or testimonies to assist in the explanation of the disappearances was disconcerting. Someone should have known something. Surveys had hoped that if no one could defeat the Cornix gang, he could at least barter for his daughter's return. So far as anyone knew, the gang's entire operation had been disbanded indefinitely. Marissa was lost beyond the world he knew, taken to someone else's, perhaps even away from this one. The king fell into a deep state of depression and the alliance of countries had followed suit. Roe had been thinking about a conversation he had overheard at a party the evening prior between Nerez, the vegetarian cook for the castle of Crisius, and Father Hagar. He had mentioned, after Nerez had inquired if there had been any information regarding the whereabouts of Marissa Narcissus, that one of the lieutenants may have found something while attending a private meeting in Mecca Aish with one of the king's sons. The lieutenant's name was Garrett, whom Harold recalled had taught at Joam Academy briefly. If that were the case, someone in Mecca Aish could have found the princess and also might have information on Jonathan. How Marissa Narcissus could have gone from Narcissus all the way to Mecca Aish without anyone noticing was quite the mystery. Harold hadn't heard any word of rescue or investigation from Narcissus, and Hagar's visit to Mecca Aish had occurred almost a week earlier. Being a prominent member of Narcissus's high order allowed him to receive the inside scoop on everything that went on with the comings and goings of operations within Narcissus Castle. Harold's curiosity and inquisitions often got the best of him, so he decided that he would ask about this Garrett person the next time he visited Narcissus, which was about three to five times a season. His next trip would fall within the following week, and he would go from there. Harold almost never received ships from Mecca Aish, but earlier that morning, a boat with 32 men aboard arrived in Narcissus to gather supplies for a month-long voyage to an unspecified location in the west. That in itself was suspicious. There were other countries and continents to the west, but this was the worst time of year to venture that direction as the seas of Asia raged with the turn of the winter to spring while the nautical life beneath the waves migrated north away from the equator. 
Mecca-Aish was a growing city, but they had no business or connectivity to the west as far as records went. Of course, there's no one to stop someone from venturing where they please, so why did it feel like a red flag to Harold Rowe? He didn't know, but his suspicions led to curiosity, and his curiosity always led him to answers. Blurt the Bumbler had his foot on the back of Jonathan's head, mashing his face into the sand as Jonathan struggled to grasp the glass shiv a few inches from his outstretched fingers. Cruz stood with his arms crossed, watching this entire event occur. He had a fairly bad gash on the side of his face from the strike his brother dealt him. Unfortunately, Cruz had survived the assault and could further his attention upon Jonathan in the days following. Just give me an hour, Jonathan, an hour of what you know about the equipment. I'll spare you this pain if you just give in, Cruz said as Blurt began whipping Jonathan with his switch. Ugh, every evening I'm afraid I might kill you, but every morning you look almost good as new. I've never had such a resilient prisoner before. Enough, Blurt. Blurt got up and ambled back to his quarters. Guards, raise him, Cruz said. The guards took Jonathan's arms and hauled him to eye level with Cruz. Jonathan's whole front and face was covered with sand and dirt. This is your last chance to help me. Tomorrow I start a whole new form of torment, one that is usually reserved for unruly soldiers in our army. Couldn't help you if I wanted to, Jonathan managed. He felt like he might choke on his tongue if he tried to say anything more. Take him back to his cell. Tomorrow, Jonathan, Cruz said. The guards returned him to his cell. He hadn't seen Marissa since she told him she wanted to stealthily figure out how to get the artifact on her own. He had snuck out to the far cell to witness the funeral burning of Cruz's brother, Rainier. Everyone in the city had congregated below the balcony where the event had taken place and lit candles. The upper platform of the fort was also packed with family and nobility, hoping for their last chance to witness the prince's body. King Zion had made an increasingly rare appearance. He brought with him, cupped under one palm, the orb that had not stopped glowing blue since the moment of Rainer's death. The dour look on his face was gut-wrenching. Jonathan had never had a child to lose, but couldn't think of anything worse than losing one like this. Cruz, clearly playing innocent in the whole mess, stood in his formal uniform, accepting condolences from all who paid them. Once the fire smoldered to ash, everyone began to disperse. Jonathan stayed so long as the king remained, watching the orb, knowing that it was connected to him in some vital way. Once Zion walked back to the eaves of the castle, Jonathan made his way back to his solitude. The next day, Jonathan came to as the door to his cell opened. Three guards entered and hauled him out to a large stone plank that jutted from the edge of the fort. The sun had only just graced the mountaintops to the east, casting rays of morning light across the valley below. Jonathan thought the place looked not unlike that of cities from Earth's Middle East. Tens of thousands of small houses and people hurrying through the streets. Temples were dispersed throughout the mixture of adobe buildings, their forms wavering in the distant heat. Two guards tied his hands to the posts sticking out of the plank, and then he was whipped for what felt like two hours. Twenty-five lashings rang out that morning. His knees had buckled by the end. He wanted nothing more than to die as the blood dripped down his back and pelvis to the sand beneath him. He had writhed in torment as they finished the count. I can make it go away whenever you want, Jonathan, Cruz said once the punishment was over. Help me so I can help you. Jonathan kept his head down as the guards untied his hands. 
they tossed him back in his cell to recuperate for the following day. Harrelrow had arrived in Narsus early, only to find that the lieutenant named Garrett had not returned to Narsus in nearly two weeks. His position in the army was nearly forfeit. The last place his family and superiors knew of him was that he was on a diplomatic trip to Mecca Aish. Harrell had begun to associate the city with an unpleasant taste in his mouth. He heard so little about the place throughout his life, and now some event pointed it to the center of a major disappearance. Speaking with Burgo, Garrett's superior, Rowe was the first person to relay the information that the last time Father Hagar had seen Garrett was right before he chased after a girl who he believed was Marissa Narciss. Based on the information Harold had gathered from everyone else, that was the last place anyone had seen him. It was just about time to take a trip to Mecca Aish to ask a few questions personally. He wanted to schedule a visit the following week, but he would be in Cathara, hosting the yearly Pyramids Wharf Festival. He would have to either do it before the end of the current week, or wait until nearly two weeks later, in which time the investigation could have gone cold. With so much evidence linking Marissa Narciss's disappearance to Garrett's disappearance, the responsibility of looking into these matters in a timely fashion fell upon his shoulders. As he made for the boat that would take him back to Dartus so that he could make a quick ride to Chryseus, someone called his name. Harold! It was Onslow, the Narciss dock foreman. He had a bushy beard like most of the dock workers, but the hair on his head had started to dwindle, leaving a peach dome amidst his light red hair. What's up, Onslow? Harold Rowe turned from his position in line to see the foreman. Onslow stopped beside him on the opposite side of the ribbon marking the path beside the large merchant boat sitting in the water nearby. I saw your name on the outgoing and remembered your orders regarding the Quero, the westbound boat from Mecca Aish that you inquired about the other day. Yes, Harold said, leveling his gaze upon Onslow's brown eyes. Thought you might be interested to know that it came back. It's going eastward to Mecca Aish. Only one passenger. Harold's eyes widened. Only one passenger of the thirty-two that went out? Onslow nodded. They also didn't have a single box of cargo. How long ago was this? About an hour, sir, Onslow answered. Thank you, Onslow, Rowe said. Onslow nodded and hurried back to his duties. Harold Rowe boarded his ship to Dartus and planned his trip to Mecca Aish for the following afternoon. Jonathan felt the familiar sandy cage on his arms and knees as the freshly drawn blood of his back stained his flesh. The guards slammed the door closed behind them. Jonathan could hear them walking away. He fell onto his side, unable to move. It hurt more today, seemed to hurt more and more with each passing second. Breathing became extraordinarily difficult. His insides churned as if someone were stirring them with a stick. It occurred to Jonathan that something was happening to him. Some process was taking effect that was out of his control. He heard the clunk of the door down the hall, meaning a guard had entered the corridor. The footsteps approached slowly, carefully. The thing inside Jonathan began to seize and clinch, tightening Jonathan's insides to an inoperable level. Blood began to slide from his cheek to the iron grate on the floor. The footsteps stopped by his door. The latch turned. The door pushed open. A figure shrouded in a travel cloak stood in the opening. Ice filled Jonathan at the sight of him. He didn't know why, but he recoiled to the corner in terror, blood running down his chin as he fell into a fit of coughs. Good afternoon, Jonathan. William Mason pulled back his hood to reveal his familiar face. He had a full beard and mustache and looked like an alondron. He drew from his cloak a blood-red orb that rested in the base of his palm. 
It filled the cell with crimson light as it lit Jonathan Tabith's face. It's been far too long. 6. One week before the present. William took a falcon up from the hamlet of Redvine, a small organization around the base of Clara's fallen freighter. From the outside observer, the city looked like any Alondron town on the planet. Clara had gone to the capital city of Narsis herself and saw to it that the Alondron authorities recognized her as an Alondron princess from a far-off continent, daughter of Ray the Conqueror, a fictitious king who had billions of men at his disposal. Just as her voice allowed her entry into the city, it influenced the minds of all who heard her. The Alondrons believed her story and allowed her people to build an outpost so they could trade with such a remarkable empire. Meanwhile, since Clara had convinced the Alondrons that their specialty was iron, William and several of the other pilots began using the weapons on their freighters to tunnel into the mountain from the seaside that overshadowed Redvine. This allowed the survivors to gather the minerals as they needed while also giving the impression to the Alondron regulators that they had an influx of goods to trade. So long as their story was straight, the Alondrons had no reason to question Clara's statements. The few that did, Clara was able to deter using her influential presence. William had remained vigilant to Jonathan's actions in the time that Redvine took to become an organization. He even went so far as to send drone scouts to the major cities where Jonathan began competing after he became a champion. He watched Jonathan murder hundreds in the arena, some of them their own people. He killed without hesitation or question, taking pride and satisfaction in his new job on the planet. So far as William understood, Jonathan was an enemy to the humans of Alondronon. He showed his findings to Clara, and she told him to keep watch on Jonathan for as long as he could. And then Jonathan disappeared. William followed his status to Narsis, heard a little bit about him possibly investigating the disappearance of Marissa Narsis, and that was all. All evidence of Jonathan's existence dried up within a day. For a long time, William's hopes of Jonathan having been murdered and buried in a field somewhere seemed like a plausible explanation for his absence. A day later, while William was surveying debris from the enigma that was caught in Alondronon's gravitational pull, he scanned a massive disturbance from nowhere he could isolate. It altered the very course of the debris he was chasing. He had never surveyed anything like it before, other than a noticeable altercation in the flow of most physical properties outside of Alondronon's atmosphere, nothing seemed to have changed. On a daily basis, William received notice that several of the ships from the Enigma were receiving failed login information. William had taken on the duty of keeping inventory on everything that the Alondrons had confiscated as evidence. They had become very fascinated with human technology in recent months. Because they couldn't do anything about it yet, William had to allow the Alondrons to take these items. This allowed him to listen in on the natives. Routinely eavesdropping on the Alondron stories, William isolated the vessels in the growing Alondron city of Mecca Aish. His scouting devices picked up Zion's orders while relaying to William that these Alondrons had found both Marissa Narsis and Jonathan Tabith off the coast. Sending scout drones to the city, William overheard Jonathan mention that the reason he was unable to do anything was because of a strange spherical object that had been birthed from a glass rod found in some kind of wizard's keep. Knowing Zion's investigation, and hearing about Jonathan's definite weakness, William decided to take action. The second artifact lay at the bottom of an obscure lake that, to the Alondrons, was so large that it could have been considered a small ocean. Using the ship's radio scanning technologies, William was able to pinpoint the orb with ease, and claim it for his own.
He then stole an Alondron boat and sailed it back to Mecca Aish where he brought the orb directly to the cell that housed Jonathan Tabith. So you're probably wondering why I'm here, William said as he drew closer to Jonathan Tabith, who was still shaking uncontrollably in the corner, watching William. I'm a little surprised myself. Why would I care what happens to you? Hasn't everything you've done come and gone? Your influence and reign of renaissance finished. Isn't that what it's always been about with you? To see how large your followers could build your statue? You don't know, breathed Jonathan. Anything about anything. I know that something happened to you while you disappeared from the face of the planet, and I know that it has something to do with this and the other artifact that has been recovered. You activated these things, and now they're draining your life away. So far, the Alondrons haven't been able to kill you, but that will soon change. I've been listening, Jonathan. Your days are numbered, and the Alondrons of this city have begun to realize that you're not going to tell them what they want to hear. We can only hope it happens quickly. Maybe you won't even see your end coming. Were you ever going to get to the fucking point of why you're here? Jonathan managed through a forced growl. I'm here to let you know that you're no longer welcome, William said. What does that mean? Jonathan asked. In our reorganization efforts, you've been absent every step of the way. You've killed the natives, and you've even gone so far as to kill our own kind. Based on the information I and the rest of the officials and survivors of the Enigma have gathered, you are no longer welcome amongst our people. You will not be allowed into any of our territories. If by some miracle you survive the torment you legitimately deserve, do not come and find us. I should have killed you, Jonathan coughed. In your case, yeah, you should have. But I'm the only one who's been watching you since the beginning. I've always known that you were never doing all of this for us, or for humanity as you always boasted on Earth. You did all of this, every decision and choice up to this moment, for yourself. In the process, you have ruined us, Jonathan. You are the worst human alive. Get out, Jonathan said lowly, eyes fixed on nothing just over William's shoulder. All right, but... I said get out, Jonathan yelled. William turned and left the cell, closing the cell door behind him. He remained in the corridor a moment as if he were going to say something, but then continued up the steps nearby. Jonathan lay back against the wall, the disturbance gone but its influence still lingering. The artifact William brought with him, he was going to leave it in Mecca Aish for Zion to find. After that, Jonathan would be paralyzed and helpless to defend himself in the event that it became necessary. In his current state, he couldn't even escape if the door were wide open to him. He had few options remaining before what would probably be his execution the next morning. Jonathan stared at the wall determinedly. He was more angry than he thought possible after having fallen so far. There was an option, an option that would make him the biggest traitor in the world and wouldn't guarantee his safety but for a short period. The lines in Jonathan's face deepened as he connected another step to this growing plan of his, one that would put his dear captor in his crosshairs. He heard a noise. Jonathan instinctively looked to the great where Marissa Narciss had met him. It had been a full week since they saw one another. He had hoped she would have escaped the city by now, but he saw the grate flip open. Metal slammed on metal. Her dark brown hair looked black in the dimness of the room as she pushed herself into the cell and met Jonathan's eyes with her green-blue ones. Who was that guy I heard you talking to? Marissa asked. Someone from my past. Jonathan watched Marissa carefully. You don't look so well. 
she observed. I can't move. He brought another one of those stupid orbs. They're both draining me of every last bit of energy I have. I came to tell you that I know how to get Zion's trophy. I just need a distraction. Everything is carefully watched in the fort, everyone constantly on guard. But when something happens, they all move. I had to expose my hideout. You were seen? Jonathan scowled. It was necessary for my cause. If all I've got to do is get these things away from you and you'll smash these guys to high heaven, then it doesn't even matter. We need to act fast, Jonathan said without moving any part of his body except his lips. I'll get you your distraction about an hour after I get taken for punishment in the morning. You need to find both of the orbs, red and blue, and then get them to the four-wheeler near the electronics the Asians have collected from my ship. You won't be able to drive the vehicle, but I'll be along as soon as I can to activate it. From there, I know a place where we can go to do away with these orbs once and for all. Why didn't you go to your king with this information? Surveys Narsus surveyed Harold Rowe carefully while stroking his chin. Because I couldn't guarantee that action could be taken within a reasonable length of time in order to see to it that Marissa Narsus might be rescued. I've given you all the information from my investigation. Marissa and Jonathan Tabith are being held captive in Mecha Aish. The lieutenant of your army, while trying to retrieve the princess in Mecha Aish, was slain for having witnessed her capture. His horse was released conveniently near the north side of Alacrity Field, so any Christian could bring it back and determine that some kind of accident had occurred. They want to return Marissa Narsus, but they want a fat reward in the process. It's simply a matter of exploiting the good fortune of having found Marissa Narsus first. They're no different from the Cornix gang, Survey shook his head. What of Jonathan Tabith? Why is he still in the picture? Did he run off with her? I don't think so said Harold. From my understanding, Jonathan is also being held captive. Why, though? What use is he to them when they know who he is? Narsus asked. My concern has been for Marissa. I haven't had the information to look into Jonathan's part in all this. However, I thought it necessary for me to bring light to these events before I took further action. Thank you for your consideration. There's little option other than to send a small army to Mecha Aish and explain that if they don't return my daughter, there won't be a Mecha Aish left, the king stated. I thought you might say something like that. You want to diplomatically go in by yourself at first with a small armada at your backside to see if this can be resolved without bloodshed, Surveys nodded, deducing Harold Rowe's plan. He stood up with a crooked smile on his old face. If you ride fast enough, you may be able to outrun my soldiers who will arrive in Mecha Aish by boat by tomorrow morning. I'm giving the order now. Harold took a step back. You might want to hurry, Survey said earnestly. I'm going with my men, so if you can bring Marissa to the shore to the east of Mecha Aish, then I will consider sparing the city. This whole thing makes me so angry, I don't even know if that will do it. Well, why are you looking at me like that? This is my daughter we're talking about. Get the hell out of here, Roe. Go see if the Asians would be willing to beg for their lives. Harold Roe didn't wait. He ran as fast as he could through Narsus Castle and didn't stop until he reached the docks where he practically jumped onto the ferry leaving for Dartis. He calculated his route. If the king sailed northeast from Dartis, he would hit the solid winds curving around Drogon's fort and peak, giving Roe an extra few hours. No courier ferry would take him all the way from Dartis to Mecha Aish. He would have to ride his horse all night and day across the continent, probably change horses in Chryseus. Riding through the hills of the deserted deadlands would be horrible. 
He lay down in his bunk on the ferry, shutting his eyes for the little bit of sleep he'd get for the next few days. On the continent of Shartan, at the northwest tip of the city of Mecca Aish, King Zion woke to a pleasant surprise. When he walked out onto the balcony to view the flowing blue orb he had mounted on the banister, he saw a second one that shined with unnatural curtains of warmth. Several of the other guards were transfixed by the ornament as well. Zion must have watched it for minutes before he approached the orbs and placed them in each of his hands. His body became a conductor of the energy housed in each of the orbs. While he could not tap into this well of energy, he felt it course through him in odd ways. When it became too much to bear, Zion placed the orbs in position upon the overlook above the city and summoned one of the fair maidens from town. She never returned home, and Zion had her parents executed shortly after sunrise. While Zion was experiencing sexual bliss, his son Cruz had finally come to the end of his patience with Jonathan Tabith. His two guards burst into Jonathan's cell and pinned him to the wall. He grimaced as they shoved him. Cruz walked directly up to Jonathan and took hold of his face and cheeks between his pointed fingers. I want those codes. You're going to show me today or I'm going to hurt you in places that would make even the gods weep for your pathetic existence. We're done torturing you through conventional methods. This is your last chance before we get creative. Cruz released Jonathan's face and turned toward the cell door, shaking his head. Fine, Jonathan groaned. Cruz's eyes widened, and he turned on his heel to face Jonathan. What did you say? I said I'll show you the damn equipment if you need to know so badly. No, I want the codes. You're not leaving this cell, Cruz insisted. Jonathan shrugged. It's only activated by my or one of my crew's voice. You couldn't turn on one of those vehicles if you could say everything in our language fluently. Why didn't you tell us this before? Cruz asked through gritted teeth. I didn't tell you anything before. Why don't you tell me all about your family's secrets down to all the gritty details? Jonathan managed to ask rhetorically. Didn't think so, he said to Cruz's silence. All right, Jonathan, that changes things but I think we may have found some common ground to meet on. Guards, let's give him a chance to show us what he knows. I'll meet you by the equipment shortly. The guards released Jonathan and took each of his arms in hand. They hauled him out of the cell and through the fort. As they moved, Jonathan watched the shadows, hoping Marissa wouldn't reveal herself too soon, willing her to wait for the distraction he had planned. He could barely move, something they attributed to his unwillingness to comply so they had no choice but to carry him by the arms almost the entire way. They walked him down the steep set of steps leading through the heart of Mecca Aish to the upper market district at the base of the fort. The sun was a gentle warm from on high, and the sky was a deep blue. It would have been a wonderful day to be outdoors if he had the luxury of leisure and free time. The guards pulled Jonathan through the threshold leading to the building housing the human equipment the Asians had confiscated. They each released him. Jonathan fell to his knees, the act of taking his own weight filling him with pain. He looked up to see a falcon, several hawks, and at least eight of the four-wheelers. They had built scaffolding to reach the doors of the spacecraft. Crews entered the facility from behind and appeared on the second story where the hawks were. A breath of fresh air, eh? Crews made his way to the stairs leading down. I can't imagine how rich with technology your world must have been. I'm sure you'd have had a good time being pacified by the many distractions our world has to offer. 
You certainly wouldn't have accomplished an eighth of what you have here in your lifetime, Jonathan said in a tone barely loud enough for Cruz to hear. I don't know about that, Jonathan. If you did it, I'm sure I could too. Jonathan rolled his eyes and said nothing. So which of these would you like to show me first? Cruz asked, surveying the falcon. Since he was already interested in the most effective piece of equipment in Jonathan's arsenal, he decided to cut directly to the chase. The Falcon has the highest number of features and components for me to give a proper demonstration of my people's technology. Come on up then. Cruz turned back toward the middle of the walkway. Guards, Jonathan said in a gruff call, lifting his hands. I'm afraid my legs just aren't what they used to be. The guards looked to Cruz insubordinately. Go ahead, bring him up. Cruz said, his smirk unfaltering. The guards hauled Jonathan up the steps to the second floor where the pathway led to the vessel's entrance. Cruz met Jonathan before the makeshift wooden steps the Asians had built into the scaffolding to reach the ship. Cruz opened the blast door and stepped through before helping the guards get Jonathan inside. The smell of his world and his technology, their metal and interior design, a mix of nostalgia and relief swept through Jonathan's body. He saw the many seats around the central terminal, the kitchen and facilities all present to accommodate for any given need. Jonathan's eyes met the panel in the back of the Falcon, the one that hadn't been touched, that Cruz hadn't figured out, the one that would make all of his plan possible. Jonathan flexed his fist a little. As he had suspected, the Falcon shielded some of the influence of the orbs. It wasn't enough for him to turn the tides to his favor, not yet but he had ability enough to crawl and climb. That's all he needed for now. All right, Jonathan, whenever you're ready, Cruz said. Do you need us to put you into the pilot's seat or anything? We're really not sure how all this works. No, no, you should sit in the pilot's seat. This will be a real treat for you, my friend, Jonathan said in his scratchy voice. Don't worry, there are fail-safes programmed into the system. These vessels aren't allowed to break certain safety protocols. Good said Cruz, because if you do anything questionable, we won't hesitate to kill you. I have no interest in hurting you or your people, Jonathan said sincerely, but you all might want to strap in. All right, guards, Cruz nodded, indicating the seats around the pilot's seat. Cruz dropped into the seat that was designed for the operator of the ship. The words unauthorized user flashed across the hollow panel over the main terminal. It always says this, shows us a few interesting features, and then locks us out. Of course, Jonathan said. It's designed to make sure only authorized personnel can access its features. Computer, J. Tabith, authorization key, Katzing. Authorization granted. Welcome, Jonathan Tabith. Jonathan hadn't heard this message but a few times since he had programmed it. Usually the system didn't greet or ask for security ID unless someone who hadn't been authorized tried to gain access. Since all the ships were built on the Pluto station, there hadn't been anyone unauthorized to cause the system to fail. A few key features popped up on a menu that Jonathan also didn't remember seeing but a few times, inspiring awe from Cruz and the guards. It was just light in the hologram, but they hadn't seen anything like this in their lives. Computer, engage audible voice command interface, he said as loudly as he could. Dismiss visual menu, open visors. The menu disappeared and the few remaining holographic icons moved to the sides as the windows behind the holographic interface slid open, allowing the three Asians to see the back of their storeroom. Activate thrusters, engage flight systems. The hollow keyboard appeared before Cruz. The hum of the thrusters churning to life filled the storeroom. 
The locals outside could only hear a deafening roar from somewhere within the city. Several of the four-wheelers skidded away from the back of the vessel due to the excessive, fiery exhaust. Cruz grinned like a kid on Christmas. He had been messing with this equipment for months to no avail, and his prisoner had full access to show him all the wondrous things at his world's disposal. Show me more. Let's fly this thing. Computer, Jonathan said, narrowing his gaze. Seatbelts. Cruz and his guards were locked into their seats. The guards looked to Jonathan with concern on their faces. Play the 1957 Western 310 to Yuma. Pick up where I left off last. Volume at max. Whatever suspicion they had held dissolved into wonder as the remastered high-definition black-and-white film projected before their eyes. It was at the three-quarters mark, just as Alex was shot in the back by Prince while trying to warn Dan. While their interest was taken by the fantastical sight of the movie in front of them, Jonathan crawled to the back of the Falcon. He pushed himself up to the panel on the wall and pulled the lever to release the panel hiding the mech suit that had been placed in every freighter and Falcon in the Enigma's onboard fleet. The panel flipped away and the suit, all of the components and appendages were open, emerged from the wall. Exhausting all his energy, Jonathan climbed up into the mech suit and turned around. He slid his hands and feet into the gloves and boots of the suit. Crews and the guards remained enthralled by the plot unfolding ahead. Engage mech suit, Jonathan said. The components of the mech suit slid around Jonathan's wrists, arms, ankles, calves, and thighs. The breastplate folded over his chest. The hiss of hydraulics cranked within the ship's innards. One of the guards looked over. What the hell? Cruz, he's in some kind of machine back there, the guard said. Reverse thrusters engage, Jonathan ordered. The Falcon fired through the back of the storage hall, breaking through part of the building on its way out. Everyone was jerked violently within the vehicle as it made automatic evasive maneuvers and swooped around the fort. Get ready for the ride of your lives, assholes, Jonathan yelled. Computer set autocourse for Alondronon's orbit. Jonathan looked up to the terminal. I hope you're watching, you fucking piece of shit, he said, for William's ears only. The Falcon fired straight up into the air with the intention of breaking through the planet's atmosphere. Clouds and sky raced beyond the visors ahead. Crews and the guards screamed, crying out for Jonathan to cease everything and return them to the storage hall. He could barely hear them over the hum of the thrusters. It was too late now. Their lives were over. Computer, override safety protocols. The computer confirmed the alteration. Release seatbelts. Cruz and the rest of the guards grabbed hold of the dash as the G-forces weighed on them. Kill power, kill thrusters, Jonathan yelled. Acceleration came to a definite halt as the ship's inertia carried them high into the air. Cruz and his guards drifted up into the air as the gravity slowly caught them, and then began to bring them back down. He could tell they wanted to scream, but everything was suspended. As they accelerated, Jonathan watched them get pulled to the top of the Falcon. He thought at a certain point all of them had lost consciousness, but they began moving around too much for Jonathan to tell. The ship spiraled as it plunged toward the fort of Mecha-Aish far below. Crews and the guards were flung in all directions at the top of the vessel, tenderized by the terminals built into the walls. Jonathan remained locked into the mech suit as he had not disengaged the suit lock. It was designed as a harbor in the event that a major collision occurred. He had picked up the perfect altitude to survive the fall, but he knew his heart might not handle the terminal velocity well in his condition. The ship straightened out as it fell through the clouds. Cruz's battered, unconscious body slammed into his side, his hand flapping in the excessive turbulence. 
The guards fell against the walls out of sight. Jonathan's heart seized in his chest at the sight of the city coming at them, fast. His gloved hands clenched to fists. He breathed heavily, thinking this could very well be his doom. All of a sudden, everything seemed to move extremely slowly. Clouds of humidity from the sea wafted past the visor as they made for Mecca Aish. The exhilaration struck him. Jonathan screamed in horror, a scream that seemed to ring out for an eternal length of time. Things stretched about as if you were looking at life through a tunnel. It was the vast changes in pressure as they descended, mixed with the compression caused by their speed. The blue of the sea became hyper-vivid as the buildings began to separate. His last image was of the city speeding toward them. Marissa Narcissus watched the entire event unfold. When she saw the ship coming back down, she sped through the city streets, jumping over boxes and crates, weaving through trading stands set up along the avenues, and clambering through crowds of people to get away. Several guards saw her and made to pursue her, but she was too fast. She had spent most of her youth sneaking out of the castle to free-run through the streets of Narcissus. She stopped on a building rooftop when she heard the scream of the vessel. The falcon from Jonathan's world spiraled through the clouds and smashed directly into the fort of Mecha Aish. The ship immediately discharged a giant mushroom of fire and black smoke as it crashed into the interior of the building. Marissa stared in awe at the destruction. She blinked and realized that this was her distraction. She needed to get back to the fort, to the crash site, and find Jonathan and those orbs. Zion woke to his home in shambles. He didn't know why other than an attack of some sort was underway. His whole floor had buckled, and he found himself amidst a pile of junk and debris on the floor beneath his room. One of Zion's first thoughts after he woke was that of the orbs. He scrambled for his bearings as another explosion issued from within the building. Sir! One of his guards peered in through the doorway into the absent room. Assemble the army, you idiot! Zion shouted as he climbed through a giant crack into a corridor. His initial fear had transformed to anger. He found a staircase that hadn't been destroyed and climbed it. He knew he had reached the bulk of the destruction as the devastation intensified. Finding alternate routes allowed him to bypass most of the destruction and eventually find a staircase leading to the balcony. He hopped the steps, praying the orbs hadn't been damaged by the violent activity. If only he could hold them, he would be able to figure out what to do next. They were his inspiration, his reason for being. The sunlight of the morning blinded him. He held up his hand to shield from the shine as he walked across the balcony where his sons had been attacked by the assassin, one of them murdered. He could make out movement. He tripped over several fallen stones from the wall behind him. His eyes finally adjusted well enough for him to witness a girl, their prisoner, crouched on the balcony wall, wearing a black travel cloak, a pack at her hip filled with the orbs. Their eyes met. Zion gasped. She jumped. No! He ran to the ledge and looked down. She was gone. Zion cursed, slamming both fists on the balcony banister. He ground his hands into his head and ripped at his hair. They were stolen, and she was lost. It was her, he realized. She had orchestrated this event in order to steal the last item Zion still believed could bring happiness to his life. He had to find her. He had to get them back. Zion rushed back into the destruction of the fort to find another way out. Jonathan opened his eyes to the wreckage of the falcon in front of him. Parts of the fort had caved in on the pilot's seat. The integrity of the ship had collapsed around him, but he remained locked in the suit's position on the wall. The manual release for the suit was under the right gauntlet's resting position. 
Jonathan hooked the gloved middle finger of the suit into the pull tab and tugged. The hook holding him in place released, and Jonathan fell through the falcon onto the rubble. Crews and his guards were a mutilated mess around the dislodged seats. Strings of flesh and smears of blood covered the walls and broken terminals. He was still weak from the orbs, but the suit allowed him to push himself up with ease. It was meant as a method to carry and haul equipment for long periods of time without wearing out the user. It still required a bit of strength to move the weight of the thing. Usually, that wouldn't have been an issue, but in Jonathan's condition, he had to slip off the debris of stone he had fallen on in order to put himself on his feet. There was movement through the broken visor that allowed the pilot to see what was in front of him. Jonathan squinted through the darkness, hoping it wasn't one of Zion's many guards. He had crashed directly into the fort. Marissa's pale complexion emerged from the darkness amidst the flashing sparks of the damaged equipment. Are you alright? Marissa asked, pulling broken slabs of glass out of the way so that she could get inside the falcon. I'm alive, aren't I? Jonathan asked. I've got the orbs, she whispered and met his eyes. Excellent. Now we just need to... He grunted, hauling the legs of the suit forward. Oh, my mistake. He reached over his head and pressed a switch on the neck of the mech suit. Everything quickly became easier. He dropped the mechanical boot to the rubble. He slipped and tumbled. Marissa gasped. The suit scraped against a block of stone as he landed on his ass by Marissa. Exhaustion spread over him. Being in such close proximity to the orbs dulled his motor skills. We need to hurry. It's not going to be easy for us to get out of here as is, Marissa said, helping him enter the dark corridor that was beginning to fill with smoke from a fire somewhere nearby. All right, I'm going. Even with the additional help of the internal electronics of the mech suit, Jonathan had to give it his all to keep up with Marissa. He dragged the metal boots and swung the mechanical arms helplessly as they hurried through the deserted halls of the fort. This way, Marissa said, looking both ways at a split in the corridor. At the end of the hall, a trio of guards entered. There, they pointed up the steps and made for Jonathan and Marissa. Get behind me, Jonathan growled. Seriously? Marissa looked him up and down. Ignoring his order, she drew a foot-long dagger from beneath her black cloak and stood at his side. Kill them, Zion yelled from the doorway of the hall. Bring me the orbs she carries. The two became a perfect team. Jonathan smashed the face of the first guard, and Marissa swooped from under his arm and sliced the throat of a second one. Jonathan threw both arms into the air, uppercutting the last guard as Marissa finished him. Zion had assembled a small group of soldiers at the foot of the stairs below. Marissa led Jonathan back through the doorway behind them. As they went, Jonathan threw both mechanical fists into the doorframe. He stepped through the threshold as the walls collapsed inward and followed Marissa through a path to the left. They entered an enormous courtyard with at least a thousand bloodthirsty citizens and troops of Mecha-Aish staring back at them with hopes for answers. Wrong room, Marissa said. The two ducked back into the corridor, moving as quickly as they could. Two guards entered the hall at the end of the path. Jonathan took the initiative and drove his fists through them as Marissa passed through the doorway seamlessly. The gears in Jonathan's suit gyrated and hissed as he jogged after her. She led him into a passage above an angry horde of citizens in the courtyard below. They roared in hatred as they massed the walls. Fortunately for Jonathan and Marissa, the wall was too high and only a few people could climb the two ladders at a time. The two were able to dispose of any stragglers as they entered the corridor at the other side, which turned into a large stairwell leading all the way to the bottom floor. This way, we're almost out, Marissa said. 
The stairwell shook as hundreds of Asians and guards began charging up the steps. That window, Marissa said, pointing to a window on the adjacent side of the steps. It's not a far drop on the other side, but it's easy to get down from there. Meet you in the storehouse. Jonathan grabbed Marissa Narciss and lifted her over his head. She struggled, but he threw her over the gap between the steps and she managed to catch the window ledge. Jonathan looked over to the banister to see the flood of people rising. They would reach him soon. He could only conceive of one solution, and that was putting a considerable amount of stress on the suit. He didn't have any other choice. He smashed the corner at the base of the wall nearby and ripped out the massive wooden support beam. The corner of the roof it supported crumbled and crashed to the floor around him. Jonathan turned in time to position the beam as a crossbar at the head of the stairs. He reached the far right end of the beam and smashed it so it barely fit into the space of the stairs. The riot of Asians flooded up the steps ahead of him. Jonathan pressed the crossbeam as the front of the line reached him. They swarmed and forced back on him. The stress hit the suit but it compensated for the exertion. With the beam positioned in the L of his arms, Jonathan began walking, one foot at a time, forward, the weight of the screaming crowd blocked by the massive crossbeam. They clawed and reached over the bar but could not reach him. Covered in sweat, dirt, and grime, Jonathan, who looked the oldest he'd ever looked in his life, forced back the population of people. He had the high ground advantage as he heaved and dropped the crossbeam into the horde. He walked down the steps and turned the path, still forcing everyone backward. The populace of Mecha Aish cried out in outrage as the technology of Jonathan's people allowed him to do the impossible. The mech suit was designed to withstand the weight of over 50,000 pounds. At the major turn in the corridor before the next stairwell's descent, the crossbeam became stuck as Jonathan had expected, but it put him a little closer to the ground floor. He forced the weight of the beam into the sea of angry people as they began to clamber over it. Jonathan punched through the wall nearby. Midday sunlight greeted him as he tore through the wall and emerged onto a lower-level rooftop of the fort. Jonathan jogged to the edge and dropped to a series of other roofs until he reached the ground in an alley beyond a wall enclosing the perimeter of the fort. Jonathan knew it was the storehouse where Cruz had stored the human technology. He tore through the wall nearby and entered to see Marissa staring at him from the passenger seat of one of the four-wheelers. That worked out well, Jonathan panted. I didn't think you were going to make it, Marissa called from her seat down the line of vehicles. Jonathan jogged down the aisle and jumped into the back of the four-wheeler, making the whole vehicle bounce up and down on its shocks. Ready to learn to drive? Jonathan asked, dropping the heels of his mechanical boots over the tailgate. I'm sure I can figure it out, she said, moving into the driver's seat. Computer, activate Firebird 627B. Jonathan sighed, resting his head on the back of Marissa's seat. His eyes widened as the crowd of civilians marched around the corner beneath where Jonathan's falcon had smashed the wall earlier. Learn fast, Marissa. Okay, what means what? she asked. At your feet. Left pedal stops us, the right makes us go, Jonathan said. Before that, move that lever by your right hand into gear. You want to go backward, so put it on the big R. Marissa found and moved the lever to the R. Hit the right pedal? she asked. The roar of the crowd had become deafening as they approached. Jonathan confirmed, and Marissa Narciss put the pedal to the floor, launching the two into the crowd of people until the vehicle bounced over the fallen bodies of several rioters. Move the stick up into the left. Turn the steering wheel, Jonathan cried as hands began grabbing at him. Marissa pushed the lever to the D and turned the wheel. They accelerated through the field of Asians, running down dozens until Marissa figured out how to maneuver around them. 
She still clipped a few, but she calculated the handling quickly. It was the gas and brake pedals that threw her off. The two fired forward and broke hard. Jonathan had to hold on to keep from flying out of the back. Get us out of the city, Jonathan yelled. Marissa drove them through the avenues until she reached the main path through the heart of the city. They bounded down the steps as the groups and crowds parted around them. The Asian faces reflected awe and amazement at the automotive technology that they did not possess. Marissa gunned them toward the entrance as the riot of people and soldiers emerged from the destruction of the Asian fort. From his balcony, King Zion called for the whole of his army to follow them and bring the devils of destruction back to their city, dead or alive. 7. Harold Rowe, riding his favorite horse, Mar, broke from the gnarled trees of the Deadlands and entered the highlands preceding the city of Mecca-Aish. As he ascended the first rise that would carry him into the foothills, he heard a dull roaring sound that he'd never heard before in his life. It became louder, and he saw a cloud of dust rising over the top of the hill above. Thinking it best to get out of the way, Harold guided his horse to the side of the road. A minute later, one of the earthen vehicles that Roe had seen before bounded over the hill and descended past him toward the small valley pass marking the divide between the provinces. They were moving too quickly for him to tell who was driving, but he distinctly saw what he thought were two people inside. He'd never seen a land vehicle move before, other than the tram of Narcissus' hundred-mile bridge. Harold watched the four-wheeler drive through the valley. Following alongside the road, it disappeared into the line of trees marking the Deadlands. Two men on horseback galloped over the rise as Harold Rowe gigged his horse to the middle of the road. They flew past him and tore down the hill in pursuit of the vehicle. Several more guards bounded over the hill and slowed next to Rowe. One of them Roe recognized as Captain Thright, a 20-year veteran of the Highway Guard Association. Damn bastard finally broke sight, Thright said. He pulled his horse to a halt and turned to Roe. Harold Roe, what are you doing out here? On my way to stop a war, have you heard anything on the whereabouts of Marissa Narciss? Roe asked. Thright grunted and exchanged a look from the other two guards who had pulled up next to him. One of the guards spit off the side of his horse. Asians are saying Jonathan Tabith kidnapped her, and they were in that thing that just flew by you. I did see two people, but I didn't get a good look at them, said Roe. Not like you could have done anything to stop them. The metal on that thing's impenetrable as far as I know, Thrite shrugged. Faster than our horses by a long shot, one of the guards said. Word is, Zion thinks they're headed for that behemoth of theirs down the coast near Drogon's Fort, said Thrite. That's where all that human technology came from anyway. I need to warn Zion that Narciss and his army are on the way. Surveys believes Mecha Aish is holding Marissa Narciss hostage, Roe said. Most of Mecha Aish's army is pulling through the pass, Thright said. They want blood. Jonathan crashed one of those big ships into the capital fort and killed the king's son. Harold gaped at Thright in awe. However could a person pull off something of that magnitude on his own? I don't know, Thright said. I've got to stop Narciss from attacking Mecha Aish. Harold gigged his horse into motion and entered the foothills. Several of Zion's naval forces reported of Narcissus' progress toward their city. Most of his army was between Mecha Aish and the Deadlands, but he managed to find twenty good soldiers who were willing to ride out with him to the shoreline so he didn't look like he'd foolishly dispatched the majority of his army with hopes of cornering two fugitives. He balked at his own cynicism of his actions. The bastard had killed his son and last heir to the throne of Mecha Aish. If anything was worth fighting for, worth the costly call to arms, it was to see Jonathan Tabith's head on a pike by the end of the day. Zion felt the cool breeze of the sea as he and his horsemen rode out toward the beach. 
Narcissus' fleet of ships had arrived. They bobbed like floaters beyond the drop of the shelf into the bottom of the ocean, filling the horizon. King Surveys, in his boat along with at least twenty other smaller boats, made his way to the shore just as Zion and his men galloped down the beach, their horses despising the sandy geography but treading on regardless. Narcissus' ships made a practice landfall and fell into formation immediately. Narcissus, crowded by a square of men, approached as Zion rode forward alone. The two met between their factions as the sea rolled in and out as it had done since the beginning of time. Zion dismounted his horse and walked toward Surveys Narcissus. He wore a gold and white royal uniform that looked not unlike a gown, but he had neglected to bring his crown to this small summit of powers. Surveys had brought his crown, of course. He wore a blue and white doublet beneath his fine leather travel cloak. His boots and gloves matched his cloak, and he wore a black belt with a buckle matching the crown. Was all of this a ploy for us to meet at last? Narcissus asked Zion. Is it true we've never met before today, my good king? Zion spoke in the common tongue. I see you brought a small army, but before you take drastic measures, is there something I can assist you with personally, my liege? My business involves my daughter, as I'm sure you're aware by now. I have already asked my associate to give you fair warning, and I see that he wasn't quick enough to precede my arrival, Surveys said. Zion, to level with you, if I see my daughter within the next few hours, I will take my army and leave. Zion wrinkled his brow seriously. Unfortunately, you've touched directly on the point that's been giving us quite a bit of trouble as of late. We found your daughter, Surveys, and we've had every intention of bringing her back to you on more than one occasion. But you see, it's Jonathan Tabith, isn't it? Surveys Narcissus asked nonchalantly. Precisely, my intuitive king. First, she disappeared from the fort on multiple occasions, and then Jonathan kidnapped her this morning after crashing some kind of aircraft into our capital. My men are in pursuit of them as we speak. We believe to have them cornered in Cape Drogan. Any assistance you wish to lend might get the treacherous bastard captured and your daughter back in your custody quicker. Based on our observations, he's not far from dead. Surveys stared at Zion quizzically. Jonathan Tabith? Almost dead? Was he injured? Not more than the basic torture my son imbued in him since he wouldn't speak at all about the princess, Zion shrugged, not fully understanding the situation. Jonathan Tabith cannot be killed by conventional methods. You do know that, right? Any attempt to make you believe that he can be killed or that he's weak in any sense is an illusion on his part. The king's eyes flared when he spoke. He's easily the most dangerous person we've ever had to deal with. Zion looked worried at this information. I just... The man couldn't move, based on the reports my guards were giving me. He was on his deathbed. Unless you've been starving him, we're not talking about the same person, because Jonathan defeated Remus not long ago. Remus killed Nikus, our original champion, within 30 seconds. You didn't almost kill Jonathan because he's not here now. He's alive and you let him get away. With all due respect, my liege, Zion bowed a little, containing his frustration. I can't be blamed for having lost a prisoner who I treated as I treat every other prisoner. No other prisoner has escaped from my fort, except my daughter. Narciss glared at Zion. An awkward silence followed. Is there anything I can do to prevent your turning your fiery wrath upon my fair city? We've already sustained a considerable loss. Both my sons have been murdered over this ludicrous incident that has obviously gone too far. We would not live through another assault at this time, Zion said fairly. 
Narsus took a deep breath. He didn't like Zion, but he knew he was telling the truth. An attack on Mecha H would be a drastic and predictable move, one that his father had warned of on many occasions. How do I know they are where they're hiding and you're not planning some assault? You know my populace is marginally smaller than Narcissus. It would be foolish to incur the rage of our capital city. Besides, my army is spread out beyond the highlands. If you were to sail around to Drogon's Fort by yourself, you'd see my army en route for Jonathan's hideout. If you'd lend me your attention, I'll show you where he and the rest of these bizarre humans came from. Narcissus considered Zion. Show me. You know with the ruts this thing is making in the road, they're going to be able to track us all the way here, Mercer said over the roar of the four-wheeler's engine. It doesn't matter, said Jonathan. Time is our friend. We just have to offload these things and I should be able to take care of anything that comes our way. They had just exited the wood of the dead land. The sun was directly over their heads. Without having to slow down for the hilly landscape or break for exhaustion, their eight-hour trip from Mecca H to Fort Drogon took a mere three hours. They rolled over the terrain of the field that was covered in hoofprints from Chryseus's previous invasion. The eerie ford loomed out of the distance with the nose of the enigma crunched up against its side. Its remnants had scattered across the plains to the southwest. What is that? Marissa asked, having never seen anything like it before in her life. My ship, Jonathan said. Mind going over the plan with me? Where do you think you can stow these things so that you won't be affected by them anymore? Leave that to me, Jonathan said, knowing that communicating around earthen vehicles was dangerous. His serendipitous arrival could not have been more perfect. A hawk from the Enigma hovered in the air over them, matching their speed. William, Jonathan muttered. He wrapped the divide between them with his elbow. Evasive maneuvers, Marissa. He had figured William might come into the plan at some point. Jonathan kicked a box mounted off the inner wall of the four-wheeler. Marissa swerved as the hawk soared alongside them at near ground level. He kicked the box again. The box came loose and clattered open on the floor of the four-wheeler. The stand, barrel, and mechanics of a turret mount scattered next to Jonathan's metal boot. He quickly began assembling. Jonathan jammed the bottom of the stand into the notch on the floor, just far enough back from the divider of the vehicle to allow the turret to spin 360 degrees. He put the body together and slid the three-foot-long barrel into the end of the turret. Reaching under the rim of the four-wheeler's bed, Jonathan tore several strips of bullets. He unraveled them and fed them into the slot on the side of the gun. Marissa sped up and slowed down, throwing off William as he tried to get a lock on them. Spinning around, he aimed at William and pulled both the triggers on the handles of the gun. He saw sparks and sprays of metal as William pulled up. Marissa was terrified of the noise. She slowed but managed to keep going as they rumbled across the field. I don't know what you think you're doing, Jonathan, but our technology is off limits to you. William yelled through the four-wheeler's radio communicator. What he had said so infuriated Jonathan that he stepped off the plate and smashed his fist into the console on Marissa's right. He pulled away a spaghetti mix of wires and broken terminal parts, dropped them and returned to the gun turret. William reappeared, but Jonathan batted him away like an overly large fly. He felt the pound of the bullets as the gun fired them into the ship, discharging steamy shells left and right. William hovered directly over them, blocking out the sun. It was the only place Jonathan's turret could not reach him. Take a hard right, Marissa, and then zigzag back toward the canyon behind the Enigma over there, Jonathan instructed. She drove to the right. Jonathan swerved around and lit up the side of the hawk. Realizing that this was a losing battle, William backed off. 
Jonathan continued firing until he knew that he wasn't hitting the hawk, and that they were out of its close-range assault weaponry. He could fire three long-range missiles, but it was clear that William didn't want to waste ammunition to try it. Jonathan would be ready if he did. He waited, watching as the hawk disappeared in the distance. A moment later, William reappeared, bringing with him two other hawks. Jonathan's stomach dropped. One hawk he could deal with. Two, maybe. But three, strategically circling them? Jonathan couldn't do anything but waste bullets. Marissa had just drove them over the edge into the giant canyon that the Enigma had created as Jonathan made upon his arrival upon the planet of Alondronon. It would be close, but if they could get inside the Enigma, they would be safe from William and his assistants. Jonathan ordered Marissa to aim for the flight dock, which was the only opening at the base of the Enigma. It was a bay entrance that wasn't closed anymore. Jonathan saw it as they approached, but it wasn't close to the ground. William and his company soared over them. Jonathan fired as much as he could as they circled around with the intention of getting a nice hovering vantage point. If any one of them were able to fire weapons, it was over for them. The four-wheeler would go up in a fireball of flame with them inside. Marissa put the pedal to the floor. She could feel the intensity of the situation. It ground into her nerves and carried her at the same time. The four-wheeler rocketed forward, devoid of safety precaution. Jonathan fired at one of the ships, a second dropped next to the first. He watched its weapons lower, saw the flare of fire, but then his whole field of vision was skewed. On a last-second whim, Marissa aimed for a piece of railing that had fallen off the Enigma. The inertia of the four-wheeler skied them up the rail and ramped them into the flight dock at 30 miles per hour. Everything that happened after happened in slow motion. Their vehicle came in hot, its speed pushing from the side as the axles torqued and the wheels bent. They flipped, the darkened hull of the flight dock spinning maddeningly around them as they crashed through. At some point, Jonathan was flung out and thrown into the pile of debris in the corner. The four-wheeler, on its side, slid across the deck and came to a halt beneath a support beam. The four-wheeler powered down for the last time, the tick and click of busted mechanics chiming on after the engine had died. Pain covered him from head to toe. Jonathan crawled away from the crap surrounding him. He looked to the downed vehicle. Marissa remained in the driver's seat, but she was no longer conscious. Jonathan made to get her, but stopped when he heard the distinct sound of many gun hammers being thumbed. He looked up to see at least eight bearded Alondrons dressed like vagrants, sporting weaponry from Earth. Not sure who you think you are, but you can just leave the girl right where she is. The leader stepped forward with his rifle trained on Jonathan. Jonathan swore in his mind. Nothing was ever easy. Harold emerged from the channels of the Highland, overtaking the tail of the Asian army to find Zion marching grumpily alongside his cohorts atop their horses. The skyline of Mecca Aish rose out of the mist of the distance, the fort with a stain of smoke hanging over its pinnacle. Roe's horse was nearly dead of exhaustion, and he had run dry on water. Lord Zion, Harold called. What a pleasant surprise to see you. He mopped the sweat from his brow with the hem of his cape. Zion looked him up and down. Harold Roe of Chryseus, what in the world are you doing here? I'm to warn you that Narciss is on his way with his army. He's come for his daughter. Zion processed the information and gigged his horse into motion without care. Tell me something I'm not already aware of, Roe. And what damn business is it of yours? He squinted at Harold as he turned his horse to move with the rest of the line. I was just trying to avert bloodshed, sir. I thought you should know. Harold heaved a frustrated sigh. 
I appreciate the sentiment, but I can take care of myself, Zion said. Harold's feeling of helplessness consumed him as he slowed Mar to watch the line of nobles proceed towards some foolish end. He had tried to play the mediator, and as usual, no one was interested in listening. At least the two armies weren't battling to the death. Harold narrowed his eyes upon Zion's back as the weakened man rode down the path toward the edge of sight. Everyone was after Jonathan for kidnapping the princess. In actuality, what if Jonathan was trying to escape from Mecha H to bring her back to Narsus, as he'd been ordered to do? Based on Harold's investigation prior, that's exactly the kind of cover-up the Asians would attempt. Ro was able to buy some water and food from a passing vendor. Since he had no interest in witnessing the drama unfold to the east, nor was it even his business, as Zion had pointed out, he got off his horse and set up camp for the evening. When Marissa came to, she was hanging by her wrists next to Jonathan from the steel rafters beneath the stands leading to the higher levels of the flight dock. He'd been stripped from his mech suit, which the leader of the strange group of Alondrons had put on. Being strung out, Jonathan looked like a withered corpse with his concave ribcage being the most pronounced part of his physique. He kept his head and eyes down. He'd never looked more defeated. If time had been part of their advantage, it was fleeting now. The Asians would be along soon, and then they'd be captured again, probably killed. Nice to be shielded everywhere but my head. The bandit leader flexed his hands in the suit. You guys are just full of surprises, aren't you? He asked, lifting Jonathan's head with the butt of his rifle so the leader could look into his hating eyes. Hey, Ekron, one of the other bandits said. There were more of those suits on the other side of the ship. We'll go after them tomorrow. Tonight, however. Hecran turned to Marissa. Do you like it tied up or kicking and screaming? Jonathan's hands curled to fists. No one knew it, but from underneath the seat of the four-wheeler, the sack containing the orbs began to smoke. The bandits chuckled. Hecran grabbed her chin and turned her face. She's a cute one, too. Computer, Jonathan said in a scratchy voice. Isolate foreign entities. The lights in the flight dock rose, and everyone, Marissa Narcissus included, except Jonathan, was surrounded by a strange blue light. His wrists were so scrawny that the bone-on-bone -bone actually gave him enough of a gap to slip out of the ropes the bandits had used to tie them. Jonathan pulled off the bindings with ease. I can't move, one of the bandits said without moving his lips. Me either, Hecran wheezed. Everyone began murmuring maddeningly, watching Jonathan as he escaped, but unable to do anything about it. Marissa watched him crawl over the floor to the four-wheeler. Everyone was facing Marissa now, so they couldn't see him remove the sack of orbs from the vehicle. The lights flickered overhead. Jonathan crashed into something as he got to his feet with difficulty. He hadn't even left the room when the emergency lights clicked on and the blue force fields shut off. We're free! Another bandit remarked and met Hecran's eyes. Six of the bandits darted at the same time toward the door where Jonathan was headed. Jonathan managed to slam the blast door behind him before they could get through. The two bandits swore as they tried to get the door open. Damn it! He's loose on the ship somewhere! Hecran gave the door a hard kick. Oh well, he left his girl in here for us to play with. The six turned around. Two of the bandits who had been with them formerly were now on the ground, one with a major concussion forming above his brow, and the other with a knife sticking out of his throat. Both of the ropes that had held the prisoners hung loosely on the bar where they had tied all their victims. Marissa was nowhere to be seen. Hecran yelled and punched a metal box nearby, leaving a fist-shaped dent from the mech glove. Jonathan couldn't have picked a worse path through the Enigma to try to get to the bridge. 
He stood at the bottom of a ten-story wall constructed of metal bars with which to climb back up to the main level in the event that the elevator couldn't be accessed. They no longer had convenience power, so it wouldn't automatically raise the bars as it should. Jonathan would have to climb manually, and that wasn't something he felt able to do just now. He had no choice. The bandits might not get through the blast doors behind them, but they had Marissa, and they probably knew a few routes of their own through the Enigma. He tied two halves of the sack around his neck, feeling the weight of the orbs at his throat. Jonathan began to climb from there. It wasn't so difficult as long as he took it slow. At least, he felt that way until he got to the quarter mark. His arm shook feebly. The orbs pulled toward the ground, heavy upon his neck. He moved hand over hand, trying not to look up or down. The evaluating part of his brain might help him at times, but it also had a tendency to have the opposite effect on the other end of the spectrum. After what felt like an hour of climbing, Jonathan paused to check his position. He was only halfway to the top. Sweat poured from his face back and armpits as he hauled his scrawny form up the wall. He felt like the orbs were trying to choke him, tearing into the flesh of his throat, rubbing the coarse fiber of the bag with his every motion. Jonathan thought of Marissa. He had to do this. He had to finish and get to the top. The main reactor was beneath the core hall, and that was just through the bridge and down a flight of stairs. Driving himself this way reminded him of a memorable afternoon at the Venus Academy. It was the first time that William beat him in a race to the top of the hundred-foot ladder that they were drilled on endlessly. They had laughed as they clambered neck and neck up the wall to the top of the platform, until William pulled away. With demonic speed, he threw himself to the top seconds before Jonathan could even realize what was happening. When Jonathan climbed onto the platform, William wasn't smiling anymore. He was crossing his arms and staring defiantly at Jonathan. The look in his eye, Jonathan remembered, it was a competition to William. And that's why you finished second 95% of the time, Jonathan muttered aloud as he pulled to the 7 eighths mark. Almost finished. But Jonathan was just as guilty as William, and he knew that. Throughout his life, it had never been the desire to succeed that drove him to do so. In the times of his life where he had needed to call upon himself to accomplish something, it had always been in spite of someone. His father, the many rejections he had experienced with women, the lack of capability most people had to drive themselves to the fullness of their prowess, and the constant disappointment his race persistently portrayed, to name a few. It was the need to prove to everyone that they were lazy and inconsiderate beings that pushed him to be greater. He had always wanted someone to match him, someone with the same burning desire to be larger than life, one who knows to their core that the human spirit is always capable of more. William had turned out to be a contender rather than an acquaintance, but he had been the only person to measure even close to Jonathan's desire to live. He saw the ledge, grappled it, and pulled himself onto the floor. Jonathan pushed himself to a stance and stumbled to a jog into the corridor that led to the core. Fear struck him when he entered the core hall, lit from the sunlight breaking through a giant crack running through the ceiling. Dozens of Fahrenheits were scampering around the bottom floor amidst the corpses of bandits that they had nabbed recently, bathed in the lavender light of the continually flowing core. There were two stairwells leading to the main reactor alcove beneath the core. The closest one was surrounded by Fahrenheits. He would have to run in order to get to the other one. They would see him and they would follow. Jonathan gripped the sack of orbs tightly. He broke into a run across the catwalk above the heads of the Fahrenheits below, he heard them scamper and yip in their hyena calls, the dissonant screeches signifying to the rest of the hive that prey was nearby. His chest and lungs hurt from exerting so much energy. 
He descended the stairs and began coughing as a horde of Fahrenheit's crowed and called at his heels. He passed the core and made for the hatch. Computer! Seal main reactor housing! Jonathan yelled as he tumbled through the hatch leading to a set of stairs and fell on his side midway down the first flight of steps. Three Fahrenheit's had followed through before the door closed. Jonathan got up and shoved each of them off the edge of the stairwell to the darkened floor several stories below. In the middle of the room stood the brightly lit reactor rising to the core above, the whir of ionization filling the hall. He had to hurry. Leaving Marissa was a selfish move, but he knew it was the only way he could survive. He descended the many flights of steps and jogged to the terminal that was miraculously still functional. Computer, he said as he input his password to unlock the reactor settings at the touchpad. Temporarily suspend reactor operations for five minutes. He heard the reactor power down its ionizing process. Jonathan pulled himself into motion using the safety bar around the reactor. He spun the wheel on the door hatch. It took nearly all his strength to haul the door to the side. Grabbing the sack of orbs, Jonathan entered the reactor and found the terminal within. He started the terminal and input a sequence of processes that allowed a mechanical drawer to open beneath it. Say goodnight. Jonathan dumped the two glass orbs into the drawer. The two of them glowed blue and red brilliantly, reflecting the hungry needs and wants within him. Purple light shone on his face from within the terminal receiver. They were calling to him, beckoning him to see what secrets they held inside. Jonathan shoved the drawer closed without consciously realizing that he had done himself a favor. Computer, shut down this terminal and reactor. Require my level 5 authorization to open it again. He emerged from the alcove into the housing, sealed the reactor behind him, and made for the core above. Jonathan closed his fist, feeling the energy returning. His plan was working. Marissa jogged through Drogon's fort with Hecarin and his other bandits chasing after her. The sun cascaded through the ornate pillars as she ran down an external corridor leading to a path that would filter to the grand steps. When she exited the shade and cover of the building to the ledge overseeing the market district below, she stopped running. Her lips were parted as she watched the sea of the Asian army punching through the heart of the city. The bandits caught up to her, but were just as aghast at the sight of their impending doom as she was. Shit, I know a place we can hold up inside, said Hecran. He grabbed one of his men and hauled him back into the shadows of the building. What about her? One of the men asked as he and the others followed after them. Who do you think they're after? Hecran gaped at him as they disappeared around the corner from whence they came, leaving Marissa alone. The trio of aircraft from Jonathan's world had deserted the skies. Marissa flicked her gaze to the sea to the west. A fleet of warships had broken the horizon beneath the falling sun. A naval assault from Mecha Aish? She stared at the ships as the colors of Narsus met her eyes. Marissa was both relieved and terrified. Her father had to be upset if he sent part of his army after her. He was probably on one of those boats, and he would torture her once she was found. Dozens of armed Asian men charged up the steps nearby, slowing at the sight of Marissa Narcissus standing at the ledge. She considered her options. Jump into the army below, face the army now, or make one last attempt to go back into the fort where the bandits were hiding. She couldn't think of anything to do, so she stared at the oncoming soldiers, donned in the yellow and gold of Mecha Aish. Jonathan Tabith dropped from a house nearby and stood in front of her, armed with only a short sword in hand. He looked ragged in his torn cloth pants. His back was covered with scars from the wounds Cruz had inflicted upon him. While Marissa was glad to see him, there were hundreds if not thousands of Asians throughout the city. They were just as pinned as they had been in Mecha Asha's prison. 
An Asian crew leader mounted the steps nearby and saw the standoff occurring on the balcony between Jonathan and his men. His men parted for him as he made for the front line. He stopped before Jonathan with his hand on the hilt of the longsword still sheathed at his hip. Jonathan pointed his sword at him. If you want your men to live, you'll stand down and wait for King Narcissus to arrive to take us back to Narcissus. The leader drew his sword and walked toward Jonathan. He made a motion with his hand and the rest of the soldiers followed. He said something in his own tongue, snapped his fingers, and his men hurried forward. They charged toward Jonathan and Marissa. Jonathan dodged the first man who swung at him, dropped low, and punched him in the stomach. He grabbed the soldier's sword as it fell from his grasp and sliced his and another's Achilles tendon. He threw one of the swords into a soldier making for Marissa and didn't wait to see if it would meet its mark before taking another man's sword. Jonathan sliced through an Asian soldier's breast as he backflipped onto the shoulders of another warrior where he snapped the man's spinal cord by planting his heel into the base of his neck. The rest of the army began to file onto the balcony. Jonathan shot Marissa a glance. Run! He yelled and resumed the slaying of soldiers. Marissa ran back the way she came as Asian men jogged across the desolate courtyard nearby. An explosion rang out over the city. Marissa saw dozens of soldiers flying through the air beyond the buildings across the courtyard. A moment later, two of the ships from Jonathan's world rocketed overhead. Marissa ran through a small arched corridor as an even louder explosion rocked the fort. She exited out onto the street and took a few steps. A horde of soldiers charged around the corner and made for her. Jonathan dashed into the intersection at an impossibly fast speed, disarming and tripping the front line of guards while taking a pair of swords for himself. She didn't wait for instruction this time. She ran the other direction. A siege of Asian soldiers exited the alcove ahead. A fireball struck the wall next to the opening, which then sucked eight of the warriors into its explosion. The impact knocked Marissa down before Jonathan flew by. He wiped out the rest of the men before taking out the ones behind them. He almost appeared to be in two places at once. Panting, Jonathan scanned the area for other threats. He looked exhausted, arms covered in blood and sweat pouring from his face. Smoke billowed from the wall where one of the Hawks' missiles had wiped out at least ten of Zion's men. We need to get out of here, he said. We need to get to the shore northwest. That's where my father will be, Marissa suggested. Sorry if I'm not so enthusiastic about meeting your father again, Jonathan said. Marissa grabbed his arm. My father won't let anything happen to me or you if you bring me back. Why do you even care about seeing your family again? Jonathan met her eyes. Because they're the only ones who always look out for me, she replied. Afternoon, Jonathan, someone yelled. Jonathan barely had time to turn his head before someone wearing a green cloak charged him from the passage where the explosion had occurred earlier. Brudo, Jimson Crisius's henchman, tackled Jonathan to the ground. Jonathan lost his swords but kicked him off. Get out of here, Marissa, Jonathan called, regaining his stance. Go on, get out of here, Brudo waved at her. It's Jonathan that Crisius wants. Arrows filled the air around them as Zion's archers filled the intersection behind them. The horn of Narcissus filled the air from the docks of Drogon's fort. For a moment, everything seemed to come to a complete standstill. The hawks from Jonathan's world soared overhead and rocketed east. Jonathan managed to get a sword. Brudo drew the longsword that he had slung over his shoulder. The guard captains of Mecha-Aish called for a retreat. The archers stopped firing and hurried back down the road from where they had entered. Jonathan and Brudo clashed. It was unlike anything Marissa had ever seen before. The two seemed to collide and disappear and reappear halfway across the courtyard. 
they threw one another through walls and demolished buildings, but neither landed a killing blow. The times Marissa saw them stand still, they were involved in a flurry of fencing engagements, sparks screeching from their strikes and blocks. After a while of watching the area grow increasingly more damaged by their fight, Narcissus' troops appeared at the end of the road ahead. Finally, Jonathan disarmed Bruto, sending his sword spiraling into the air. Bruto then vanished, leaving Jonathan standing alone in the middle of the road. Narcissus' archers readied themselves as Jonathan fell to one knee. The sword in his hand dropped to the ground out of pure exhaustion. Marissa ran forward and stood by Jonathan's side. Don't kill him! The soldiers made way for Surveys Narcissus to enter. He wore his blue and gold battle uniform that made him look larger without his cape on his shoulders. He had hurried through the city in order to find her. King Narcissus and his troops quickly surrounded Jonathan and took him into custody against Marissa's protests. Her father ignored her as he glared at Jonathan for failing to bring her back in the window of time they had discussed. Jonathan said nothing as the guards hauled him into the boat at the docks and threw him into a prison cell on the ship. Even as a human, being captured on a Alondronon was safer than wandering the wilderness, but now he was back in the predicament of dealing with the Alondrons again. Fortunately, he was alone in the cell, so he simply laid in a corner and fell asleep. It was a long trip back to Narcissus. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, voiced, and produced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, or check out our books and audiobooks at night-books.com. That's night with a K-books.com. And you just let them take you even though you knew you could probably defeat them? Jocelyn Sizemore asked Jonathan on the Pluto station almost a year later. She leaned on the counter next to Jonathan, listening to him tell his story. It was an entire army, said Jonathan. They chose not to kill me on sight, so yes, I let them take me. He sat at a table with a notepad Jocelyn had given to him. He wore only a pair of civilian trousers and a t-shirt. While he was older than he'd been when the Enigma had begun its maiden voyage, he still looked sophisticated and full of youth. It's what made his story of being inches from death so frequently hard to swallow. Jonathan met Jocelyn's eyes after a long period of silence. Listen, you asked me to tell you everything. I'm not asking you to believe me, but I am telling you everything that happened since the fall of the Enigma. So how much more is there to this story? She asked. I think I'm almost done, but... Well... Jonathan stared off into space. What is it? Jocelyn asked. Jonathan returned his attention to her. It's just that I haven't even gotten to the part where the moon fell from the sky. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is a production of Nightbooks LLC. 